Water, one of the foundational elements of the universe and the basis of all life. What ways can we utilize it to optimize our individual health and the collective wellness of humans on Earth and deal with the world water crisis? Welcome to the Vital Veda Show. Immerse in a shared experience with me of exploring exciting realms of holistic health and the rich, expansive field of consciousness of which underlies and encompasses everything. It is here that we explore the essence of what health and vitality truly is. Get ready to discover how to enliven your ultimate potential for health and to live life in a frictionless flow while achieving more. You deserve to feel vitality. As a matter of fact, it is innate within you. Welcome to the Vital Vader Show. Welcome to another episode. If you're joining me on the regular, welcome back. So good to feed your ears once again. Keep listening. We've got something really special today, really foundational, but very powerful knowledge. And really, you know, we really got to tackle the and get a good understanding about the foundational aspects of life. And of course, water is one of them. Um, if you're new, hey, what up? My name is Dylan Smith. I'm a holistic health educator and um, Ayurvedic practitioner based in Sydney, but I travel all around. So, you know, check out the mailing list, sign up to that on the website, check out my Facebook and Instagram, and you never know, we can meet in person. Otherwise, for now, let me keep feeding your ears and feeding your brain with knowledge through Instagram, through um, newsletters. So, yeah, let's let's keep in contact that way and, and check out all the other podcasts. It's really about interviewing experts on the field of holistic health, all aspects of health, which is connected and making you experience your true nature, which is perfect health. Today we have a very special episode with a very special someone. I'm just going to go straight into the bio of Professor Mark Cohen. He is one of Australia's pioneers of integrative and holistic medicine and has made significant impacts on education, research, clinical practice and policy. He's a registered medical practitioner with degrees in Western medicine, physiology and psychological medicine, along with PhDs in Chinese medicine and biomedical engineering. In 2002, he became Australia's first professor of complementary medicine and head of the Department of Complementary Medicine in RMIT University, which was by far the largest such department in the country. He is a board member of the Global Wellness Summit, past president of the Australasian Integrative Medicine Association, and sits on the editorial board of five international journals. Professor Mark Cohen has previously held positions as senior research fellow in the Centre for Medical and Health Scientists, Education at Monash University, expert advisor to the Therapeutic Goods Administration, Complementary Medicine Evaluation Committee, member of the Scientific Advisory Community for the National Institute of Complementary Medicine, and multiple ministerial appointments on various registration and accreditation panels. He has previously held the position as the director of the Centre for Complementary Medicine at Monash University. Got to take a break here. Big, big bio, but all fascinating roles. As a medical practitioner and professor and researcher, Professor Mark Cohen has pioneered the introduction of complementary, holistic and integrative medicine into mainstream settings. Important stuff. This has been happening. Ancient wisdom meets modern science. It's becoming more and more relevant. He has also been involved in establishing acupuncture as a form of standard care in emergency department settings and developing hospital policy on practitioner accreditation as well as co-authoring many high-level reports. 
Professor Cohen has published more than 90 peer-reviewed articles, authored more than 20 book chapters, and edited eight books on holistic health, as well as co-authoring the landmark text, Herbs and Natural Supplements, an Evident-Based Guide, which is now, I think, over 1,400 pages in its fourth edition. With the two editions being shortlisted for an Australian Publishing Award in the Scholarly Reference section, he's also co-author, co-editor of the landmark text Understanding the Global Spa Industry, which is the first academic book documenting the global spa and wellness industry. He's regularly requested to examine PhD theses from many local and international universities in peer-reviewed articles for numerous international scientific journals. Professor Mark Cohen has extensive experience in running clinical trials, including trials on the use of yoga for geatric insomnia and the use of acupuncture for analgesia in emergency departments. Professor Cohen is currently involved in research into various aspects of holistic health, including the use of organic foods in reducing pesticide exposure, the use of yoga and meditation for insomnia and stress, and the use of various therapies and lifestyle interventions for detoxification from environmental chemicals. Professor Malcolm is one of the most active people in Australia when it comes to organising conferences and holistic integrative medicine. He has organised more than 10 international holistic health conferences and in 2003 he chaired the organising committee for the first World Congress on Chinese medicine. He has also organised a complementary medicine cymopsium at the 13th World Congress on Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics. He has sat on scientific communities and currently sits on the board of the Global Wellness Summit. As well as organizing conferences, Professor Mark Cohen is a sought-after presenter and has been in, invited to speak at more than 100 conferences, including 40 international and 40 national. Professor Cohen's impact on the field is recognized by the media and he has received four consecutive RMIT Media Star Awards, as well as an inaugural award for leadership and collaboration for the National Institute of Complementary Medicine. All right, that's probably the biggest bio I'll ever read. This guy has spent 31 years at university and is quite amazing that now, as we did this interview, he was in the process and he, now he's left academia, being an academic. For 31 years he was doing that and now he's changing his role in, in the health industry and we'll, you can hear what he's doing now with that as he talks about in this episode. In this episode we discuss an overview of water on earth. Okay, he pans amazing thing of, of actually how much water is on earth. How much drinking water is on earth? Not a lot. We are 99% water, including the molecules in our body. Water as the matrix of life and the most important thing for life on earth. The distribution of water in the world. This involves the world water crisis in relation to one, drinking water, clean drinking water, and two, bathing water. The dignity, comfort, and spirituality of water. How we can bathe the world and why the world needs bathing. We have the technology and resources to provide clean bathing water to everyone on Earth, but we are more focused on doing things like going to Mars. World Bathing Day and Global Bathe the World event, which Professor Mark Cohen has initiated with, uh, with the UN. Alternating between hot and cold bathing as therapy. This is a big one we talk about a lot about cold exposure, as you've all um, probably heard about. And, and of course, Wim Hof, Mark is his personal sci- scientist, and he kind of speaks about the science of the Wim Hof method, travels around Wim Hof and, and does that role. The cold water hokey pokey, an at-home therapeutic bathing technique that Mark discovered. Benefits of cold showers and cold 
and bathing, especially alternating it with hot water. There's there's a lot for that. And also the risk of cold showers, okay? It's not necessarily for everyone. And how to approach it, you know, everyone has to approach it a different way. The importance of ease, easing gradually and gently into cold water immersion and how to do it properly. How cold showers trained James Bond to remain cool and calm in hectic situations. How water came to earth. That is, this is pretty amazing. The fourth phase of water, the gel phase substance beyond solid, liquid, and vapor. Extreme wellness practices, exploring both edges of your comfort zone but not exceeding it through basic physiological processes to find your homeostatic point of balance and then from there experience extreme comfort like hot and cold, fasting, feasting, hyperventilation, hyperventilation, we get into that. Professor Mark's five factors for life, breathing exercises, pranayama, and how to use them. The importance of coupling hypoventilation with hyperventilation when doing breathing exercises or the Wim Hof method. We spoke about this, one of Mark's good friends, in the first ever podcast with Simon Borg Olivia. Alkalizing the body and reducing lactic acid in the body with breath. Mark's five phases of breathing for health. Pranayama to increase the number and sensitivity in, of endorphins, more blissful comfort and euphoria. Our sensitivity to light spectrums, our cells emitting light, hot water. Then we go into the other side, hot water as a therapeutic technique, and we look at hot springs. The importance of magnesium and that most people are deficient in it. And then this is absolutely fascinating, thermohaline circulations. Interactions occurring at the deep depths of the ocean, which essentially provides us with oxygen. You think our oxygen comes from trees? It actually comes from the depth of oceans, and you'll see that's the real root cause. What was the turning point for Mark to go deep into cold immersion? Our drinking water, conscious relationship with water, and Tulsi. How can we leave out Tulsi? Mark's one of the pioneers in Tulsi. Holy basil, Ocumum sanctum, one of the most holy and revered herb in Ayurveda in India, and we talk about that and its relationship with water. And building biology, the health of our homes, and also balancing scientific validation with intuitive feeling and traditional wisdom. And then we get into Mark's new ventures in life. So, hope you guys enjoy. So I'm here in Warrandyte, right by the Yarra River in Victoria, with Professor Mark Cohen. And I couldn't be drinking a more appropriate tea than uh, Tulsi tea right now. In probably the man who's researched Tulsi the most. One of the most, yes. In the world, yeah. And we're not going to talk much about Tulsi today, mainly about one of the most essential elements in the universe and in life, water. One of the five elements in Ayurveda and one of the elements in Chinese medicine as well. And, and the most important element for life. I mean, the basis of all life is water. Mm. And we can talk about Tulsi and water as well. Yeah, yeah. Tulsi actually is used to purify water. Yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah. So, I mean, we, Professor Mark, we give us a overview of the world water situation right now. Yeah, well, water is um, you know, the water on planet Earth is a, a, a unique entity, um, you know, certainly in our solar system, because it's liquid water. But if you look at at the, you know, the um, I guess the, the overview of water on Earth, if, if you if the Earth was a the size of a basketball. If you imagine the Earth, you know, the whole Earth the size of a basketball, then all the water on Earth would actually be the size of a ping pong ball. And that's because most of the, you know, the Earth's 30,000 
you know kilometers um, diameter, and yeah, the oceans are just you know a, a sort of a thin crust over the over the edge. So all that water on Earth is just a ping pong ball, but that most of that water is ocean water, ninety seven point five percent. So the fresh water on Earth would actually be the size of a small marble compared to the basketball of the Earth. But then most of the fresh water is either in the ground, locked up in groundwater, or it's in the ice caps. So, you know, 97% of that. So the liquid fresh water would be the size of a small mustard seed. Hmm. So, yeah, so you imagine the size of a basketball compared to the size of a small mustard seed. And that liquid water represents all the water in the lakes and the rivers and the streams and, and the water in every living organism on Earth. And, um, you know, we, we often think of ourselves as, you know, two-thirds water, you know, 60 70% water by mass or by volume. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to count the molecules in your body, you're actually 99% water. Mm. So water is, is the matrix of life. Um, water is such a small molecule, you know, two tiny hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom, compared to all the other biological molecules, you know, proteins and, you know, collagen molecules, which are enormous, you know, nucleic acids. And they're all totally surrounded by water molecules. So there's 99 water molecules for every other, you know, mm-hmm. organic molecule in your body. So in terms of the number of molecules, you're 99% water. And it really is um, the most important thing for all of life on Earth. Mm. And if we look at the distribution of water... Um, we have this really, you know, what I think is a is a tragic and a should be like an embarrassing situation for the, for the West, where one in seven people on Earth actually don't have clean drinking water. So that's a survival issue. You know, one, one in seven people can't, you know, they don't have water to drink. And you know, I think it's like four point two million people, you know, mainly children, die every year from waterborne illness. Um, but then you have one in three people on Earth, 2.4 billion people, that don't have access to clean water to bathe. Now, you know, drinking is a survival issue. If you, you know, you can't drink clean water, you know, it threatens your life. But bathing is more than survival. I mean, bathing is, is super important for health and hygiene. And, and um, you know, hygiene is so important. Because if you can't wash off your sweat, your urine, your feces, menstrual blood, you know, mm. um, it's, it's a, a serious health issue, but bathing's also about just dignity and comfort mm. and actually spirituality and culture. Every mm. um, spiritual tradition, every culture has some element of bathing, you know, ritual water, you know, whether it's prasad, whether it's um, a mikvah in Jewish tradition. The temple, yeah, baptism. Baptism. Not only bathing, but water is God. Water, water is a divine expression of yes. the absolute. So, you know, that our immersion in water is is mm. it's not just about survival. It's about comfort. It's about dignity. It's about identity. It's about culture. It's about spirituality. And one in three people on Earth don't have access to that. And as a you know, I'm a medical doctor, and and I've been involved with education for many years and research. But if I'm thinking, what is my contribution to the world? What could I do to change global health? Um, I can't think of any other medical technology, intervention, vaccine, any invention you could ever make that would have as big an impact as just providing clean bathing water to people. So those one in three people on earth who don't currently have access to clean bathing bathing water. So um, to try and address that, I've I've been working with a, a colleague of mine, Charles Davidson, who he founded and owns the um, Peninsula Hot Springs, 
and together we, we own um, a hot spring in New Zealand. And we, we've created a foundation, a public benevolent foundation called Bathe the World. And we came up with this idea, you know, that the biggest impact we could have was to be Bathe the World. And everyone on earth deserves a bucket of water a day, you know, 10 litres a day to drink and to bathe and to cook with. Um, and I think that's achievable in my lifetime. I mean, I'm 54, but I, I really believe, you know, in my lifetime, we have enough technology, we have the resources. You know, there are so many amazing technologies now to provide clean water to people. And the fact that we're contemplating going to Mars and we're mm-hmm. doing all these other incredible things, but we can't give one in three people access to bathing water, that's an issue that I want to address. So the Bathe the World Foundation is trying to address that. We've um, nominated June the 22nd as World Bathing Day, and that's to bring attention mm-hmm. to the fact that, you know, clean bathing water is a huge issue. And, and often you know, when, I t- when I talk to people about that, they say, really, you know, the, all mm. the clean water on earth is only one, you know, a mustard seed compared to the basketball and really mm. only one, one in three people don't have access to water. That's, mm. a, that's huge. Um, so World Bathing Day is going to bring attention to that. But um, it also brings attention to the fact that bathing can transform our own health, our own physiology, our own psychology. And, you know, in the West, it's hard to relate to people, really, one in, one in seven people can't drink, and that's because we've got abundance of water. We use hundreds of litres a day. Mm. Um, but when you, when you start to tell people about their own bathing practices, and there's some very simple bathing practices you can do starting tomorrow that don't cost any money, um, in fact, it saves you money, that can transform your own physiology, and that's just doing hot and cold um, bathing mm. um, and using the thermal properties of water to change your own physiology and your own mental state. So I've, I've um, been working with Wim Hof. You know, they call him the Iceman. He's a Dutch Dutch man who found from an early age that he could, um, and he enjoyed going to, you know, ice water. And there was a particular breathing technique he used and a sort of mental focus discipline. So I've been you know, looking at the research and the, and the scientific understanding, the physiology behind the Wim Hof method and, and realised that the benefits from hot and cold bathing are enormous. And... Um, you can do that yourself just in the, in the shower and starting with a hot shower and then going to a cold shower. Mm. And I think when I talk to people, maybe one in 10, one in 15 people do that naturally and they just do it all their life and they feel good. And the other people say, oh, I can't do that. I'm, a, I'm not mm. a cold water person. I hate cold mm. water. So I've created this sort of song and dance that people can try at home that makes it more comfortable and easy to do that. And I call it the cold water hokey pokey. So it's based on the hokey pokey song, which most people know, and it makes them smile just to think about it. Mm-hmm. And so what, what you do is you, you start with a very hot shower. So you have your normal hot shower, you soak yourself up and do what you do in the hot shower. And then you turn the heat up a bit. So you make it a little bit uncomfortably hot until you're really flushed and vasodilated mm-hmm. and maybe even you know, a bit sweaty even though you know, you're in the water. And then, and this is the hardest part of the whole exercise, you make the decision to turn off the hot water and turn the cold water on mm-hmm. and you stand back. And that decision to do it, once you've committed to do it, you know, the rest is actually easy. But that Making that decision is a mental exercise. You're exercising a, a mental muscle here to say, I'm going to put myself in an uncomfortable situation and I'm going to be relaxed and I'm going to be okay. Mm. So I can face an uncomfortable situation and I'm you know, up to the task. Mm. So just making that decision is really powerful for your own self-efficacy, your own self-confidence um, in, in dealing with life. Mm. So then so you've turned the hot water off and the cold water on and then you just wet your left foot and leg. And then your right foot and leg, and then your left hand and arm and your other hand and arm. 
and you keep breathing calmly and smile to yourself because that's what it's all about. So that's the first verse. <laughs> and what that's done is it's vasoconstricted your limbs. So all that blood that was flushed, you know, in your vasodilated um, blood vessels in your limbs is being pushed into your core. So that push, pushes extra blood into your internal organs. So you're actually giving your internal organs, a, you know, extra blood. Um, but actually you don't feel cold yet because it's only your limbs that are cold. But then you go to the second verse, and the second verse is, you know, you put your left side in and then your right side in and your front side in and you turn yourself around. And the way to handle that better is normally when you go under cold water, it's a sort of a sympathetic reflex where you, you'll gasp and you'll take an in-breath, and that's sort of the shock. And, and in fact, when you go into you know, ice water and, and really cold water, you reproduce the, the breathing pattern and the body chemistry of panic and anxiety. Mm. You get this sympathetic overload, you know, you actually start going through that. So what you want to do is you want to tell your body you're not in a panic situation, you're in a relaxed situation. So before you put your left side in and when the water hits your neck and the blood vessels are you know, up around your neck, um, you know, you start to feel a bit cold. But if you take a big breath before you do that, and as you're putting your left side in, you, you sigh out. Mm. And that's a parasympathetic relaxation response. So you're telling your body, I'm safe, I'm relaxed, because normally you don't do it at a relaxed sigh when you're in stress. Mm. So you're telling your body, you know, okay, you're putting your body into stress, but you're actually being relaxed. So you take a big sigh out and you put your left side in, then your right side in, your front side in, turn yourself around, keep breathing calmly and smile to yourself because that's what it's all about. Then the third verse is you put your whole head in. <laughs> turn, shake your whole head around, stand still, get a drenching, slowly turn yourself around, continue breathing calmly, smile to yourself, that's what it's all about. And then you can sing the hokey pokey song. You go, oh, hokey pokey, and then you put the cold water on your pulse points, on your groin on your armpits and on your kidneys. Mm. And by the time you've done that, you'll find that you'll be standing under the cold water and then you can stand under for another, you know, 10 seconds, a minute, but you'll find you'll be really comfortable in the direct jets of the cold water and it hasn't been traumatic mm. and, you're cu and you're quite calm and relaxed. And then when you turn the cold water off, you actually feel really invigorated. Mm. And that's done so many things. It's um, vasodilated your blood vessels and you've got about 100,000 kilometres of blood vessels in your body. And those blood vessels are lined by smooth muscle that's not normally under voluntary control. Mm. It's controlled by your sympathetic and parasympathetic, you know, your autonomic nervous system. So by consciously controlling temperature, you can get mastery and control mm. these blood vessels. So you've opened them up with the hot water, you've contracted them down with the cold water, and that's an incredible vascular workout. Mm. And vascular disease it used to be the number one killer on, on the planet. Now it's actually number two because cancer's taken over. Mm. But um, vascular disease, you know, heart attacks, stroke, etc., is a huge um, issue because we don't work our vascular system. Um, well, not in that way very often. And a lot of people even in, in you know, modern societies don't even let themselves get cold. And we've got central heating, mm. we've got you know, good clothes, we've got heated cars. Mm. You know, you know, we don't actually expose ourselves that much. But to do this you know, short exposure can be really powerful. And they actually did a, um, some research in the Netherlands and it was inspired by Wim Hof where they got 3,000 people and they randomised them and, you know, some were randomly assigned to have just a hot shower and the others were having a hot shower followed by a cold shower and the cold shower was either 30, 60 or 90 seconds. And they did that for 30 days. Mm. And they found after 30 days, the people that had the cold showers after their hot shower had 29% less sick days mm. than the people who had a hot shower alone. 
that was one, that was the main outcome measure they looked at. But that was a dramatic result that you know just having a, a you know up to thirty mm. second or 60, 90 second cold shower after your hot shower reduced the number of uh, sick days. Um, and then most of the people who had the cold shower said they'd continue doing it afterwards. Mm. They didn't say they necessarily liked it, but they liked the effect on their life. Mm. Um, and that's sort of pretty powerful. And and it didn't actually matter if it was 30, 60 or 90 seconds. Mm. Um, they all got the same effect. And I think that's because even after 30 seconds, you've overcome that sympathetic <gasps> you know, response mm. of that inhalation. You've actually you know, forced your body to be relaxed in this uncomfortable situation. And that's actually... Um, you know, a lot of what you do in yoga, where you put yourself in an uncomfortable situation and you relax. Mm. So you allow yourself to be you know, really comfortable in what is otherwise an uncomfortable situation. And by doing that, you're exercising your adaptive processes. You're increasing your resilience. Um, I mean, there's a lot of ways we normally stress ourselves. I mean, going for a run is a stress mm. on your body. Yeah, Especially if you're breathing through the mouth and huffing and puffing. Yeah, and it's exercising your cardiovascular system and you're actually causing small inflammation in your mm. muscles. But then that inflammation in your muscles and that stress builds muscle mass, it builds cardiovascular um, capacity, mm. and it makes you more adapted to cope with other stresses that are outside your control. Mm. And that's where I think there's... Um, been a bit of a misunderstanding because I think a lot of people think stress is the enemy mm. and that we have to, you know, relax more and meditate more and, and do all these um, stress management processes. And I think, you know, stress that's outside our control, that's mm. from the external environment and it's chronic. So it's there all the time. And mm. there's lots of those, you know, you've got you know, just the pressure of living in the modern world with all the... Road rage. You know, just the traffic <laughs> and social media and email of things and mm. work and family mm. and finances and mm. taxes and all the, you know, illness and all that thing you have to... That, that's all this chronic stress. It's there all the time. It's out of, out of control. So that's not good for us. That actually um, stresses our adrenal glands and cortisol with the, you know, the the hormone that gives you sort of the response to long-term stress. So that's not a, um, a great thing to deal with. But if you can have acute stress that's totally in your control, that's more of an adrenaline response. Mm -hmm. It's a very short-term response, but that exercises your adaptive mechanisms that helps you c c um, control and adapt to this chronic stress. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we can do with um, hot and cold bathing, where you've put yourself under an acute stress and... According to yourselves, you know, cold water is a life and death experience. You can't survive in really cold water um, for, for a long, long time. Um, so you, your body's going into this you know, life and death um, adaptive response, but you're totally un, 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 you know, in control. You can get out of the hot shower, you know, the cold shower any time you want. You can just turn the hot back mm -hmm. on and, and have that. Um, but your cells don't know that. Is that okay to do after turn the Absolutely. water on? Well, you can, you but it, the... you can, but it's actually better, and you'll feel better if yeah. you end on yeah. cold. Yeah. Um, so, and and in, in fact, traditionally, if you talk to the Scandinavians, the Finns, who, who mm. you know, sauna is a Finnish word. Um, when they go into a sauna, it's not just about the hot of the sauna. They then you know take it for granted. You, you go into the sauna, and then you go outside and you jump in a lake or a river in the snowdrift, mm. and you. Um, you know, you chill your body and you do that a couple of times. So that's that open your blood vessels, close your blood vessels, open them, close them. And that's in your control. And that's actually a really healthy thing to do. But generally, they say you always end on cold. And what that does, it actually um, vasoconstricts your superficial blood vessels and actually locks the heat in. So you can actually feel yeah. warmer ending on cold um, than you would just ending on hot. And even um, before you go to bed, 
they found that you actually sleep better when your body is cooling down. Mm. So your body naturally cools down when you when you you know rest and go to sleep. So having a hot shower and going straight to bed, you won't get as much benefit of sleep as you maybe have ending on just a, a short burst of cold and then going to bed. Can I just ask? I understand going from cold to hot would be great. You're opening your blood vessels after it's been constricted, but can there be some potential damage if you're your blood vessels are open, all your channels are open, and then you go into cold and they suddenly constrict. Mm-hmm. Is there any... I know you're saying well, it's pushing the well, blood back to the, the well, torso, but is there any... Well, there is. I mean, there, there's there's um, cold shock, and there's quite mm. a lot of research on this. So, for example, people who are on a, you know, on a boat and they fall into the North Sea. Um, now, it takes about 20 to 30 minutes to get hypothermia, even in ice water, mm. and die. Mm. And people do die. Mind you, Wim Hof, he spends nearly two hours in ice water and he's fine. I mean, he's got the world record. I mean, he's, he's trained. But, um, but for a normal human, you know, 20 to 30 minutes in ice water will give you hypothermia and die. But there's many cases of people who fall into ice water and they die in a minute. And that's because, one, one they're not ready for it. They're in shock and they get this cardiovascular, so that sympathetic response, <gasps> you know, that panic. They have sympathetic overload, and it just it, and especially if they've they're a little bit brittle and they've got cardiovascular you know arrhythmias or you know mm. um, an issue there that they can go into atrial fibrillation, um, ventricular fibrillation and actually die of a heart attack. Mm. So there is you know the idea of cardiovascular shock. Now that's very uncommon, and I, I don't think I've ever heard of that happening if you're doing it voluntarily. Yeah. So you're in control then, and you're expecting it. Very different than if you're in a panic situation. Mm. Jeez, you know, you've just fallen, you've been on a boat now, suddenly you've fallen in the North Sea and it's freezing water. And mm. um, so you're in that sort of panic and sympathetic overload. Mm. Um, but otherwise, just going from the hot to cold, and, and I recommend that people do it gently, mm. um, that they don't, you don't want to shock your body. And a lot of people who are averse to cold water do it because they've jumped in cold water, they've done it, they think they have to do it on their head straight away. Mm. And that that's it is shocking and it's uncom- really uncomfortable. So you want to do it as gradually and uh, gradually um, as gently as possible, and ease into it. Now our bodies are designed to adapt to cold, and I think you know, especially in Europe, that as winter progresses, you know, winters get can get really cold. Mm. That each day gets a little bit colder than the next as you're going through autumn, and as that happens, your body then adapts and it. It actually builds brown fat, and brown. Mm. We can talk a bit about that later. But brown fat's an organ that's um, that's similar to white fat, but it's laden with mitochondria that, pre- that are decoupled, so they produce heat, and they're around your big blood vessel, so they actually produce heat. But also, just your vascular responses um, adapt to cold. So you'll find that if you do a um, a hot, then just a, a cool shower, then if you do it tomorrow, you'll be, you'll be able to cope with that easier and be able mm. to make it colder, and. I mean, I find in Melbourne that um, the temperature of the cold water um, changes a lot from summer to winter. So in, in winter time, you know, the cold water from the, the shower, and, and I've got a swimming pool that, you know, it might go down to eight or nine degrees, which mm. is really cold. And they say anything below, you know, 12 to 14 degrees is considered, you know, really cold mm. water immersion. Yeah. But then right now, I mean, we're right in spring now, you know, next week's the equinox, mm. the spring equinox, and the water temperature started to rise, and we've had some beautiful spring days like mm. today. And, you know, the water temperature might be about 16 or 18 degrees now. It might go up to 20, 22 degrees in summer. Mm. And that, you know, right about now, the cold water in the tap, for me, 
isn't cold enough. Because mm. I'm being used to having cold showers in winter and feeling that really that snap cold. Mm. And you know, you quite enjoy that when you get used to it. Mm. And then you feel like, well, I'm not getting that same effect. And mm. um, I've actually bought an ice machine for my bathroom now, so I can I can have ice bars in mm. summer. And I think a lot of people aren't well aren't adapted or don't appreciate that that much. Like the, the study I mentioned in the Netherlands, where they had three thousand people doing hot and cold showers, mm. that was done in winter in the Netherlands, mm. and that's mm. um. You know, I think the temperature was 12 degrees of their of their shower water. And it's interesting, um, Ian Fleming, you know, who wrote the James Bond series, he actually wrote that James Bond does a scotch shower every day. And a scotch shower is a hot shower followed by a cold shower. But you can imagine in Scotland, the, the cold water is really mm. cold. Yeah. You know, it might be you know, below 10 degrees. And... Um, you know, that's, that's actually written into all the James Bond series that you know, James Bond, you know, and, and you think about James Bond, that he can stay cool and calm and collected in these crazy situations, mm. but he's training himself every morning mm. by going into a crazy, you know, cold shower situation and staying cool, calm and collected. So that's a, I mean, it's a fiction, but it's, um, you know, there's some basis in that, that it's mm. a really um, positive practice. So in terms of the, you know, is there any contraindications or damage? Um, as long as you start gently and you're in control and you're feeling safe, and you can do this in the comfort of your own home, mm. um, you don't need equipment, um, and, and you start gradually and you do it you know, each day, maybe a little bit colder, maybe a little bit longer, mm. um, and then you can actually work up to taking ice baths. And when you do an ice bath, that's, that's another level of cold because when you do the hot, cold shower, you're, you're giving yourself a snap cold, so it's more about mm. the vascular effects. When you start going to an ice bath, and, and um, I've done workshops with Wim Hof, and, and pretty much everyone can tolerate an ice bath for two minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, you might not think you can, but it's, it's quite okay to have a two-minute ice bath, and you, you know, you're not going to hurt yourself. But then you can build up with that. And what that does is it starts to turn on your metabolic system. It actually exercises your adrenals with the, with the sympathetic response, but then it starts to exercise your thyroid gland. And after, you know, say a one or two, you know, say a two-minute ice bath, um, for three to four hours afterwards, your basal metabolic rate will increase. Your thyroid gland will be activated, and it turns up your basal metabolic rate because to generate heat, because mm. you, you warm yourself up from that's the inside. The yeah. Happening in the cells. Well, that's it. Well, it's, um, it's just your basal. Yeah. So it's just turning up your um, metabolism. So your yeah. heart will beat a bit faster, mm. and yeah, your, your basic metabolism just through the respiration, burning glucose, you generate heat. Mm. So that's every cell will generate heat through respiration, and that again, normally we don't exercise our thyroid in that way because we don't let ourselves mm. get really cold. And the aim of that is to get to the point where you're cold, but you're not actively shivering. So that's, um, you know, thermogenesis through muscular activity. Mm-hmm. But if you think on an evolutionary perspective, if you're act- actually shivering, mm-hmm. it means you don't have control over your muscles anymore mm-hmm. because they're, you know, they're, they're contracting without uh, involuntary contracting. So then you can't do whatever you need to survive. But you want to get to the point just before you're shivering. And that means that you're really activating your metabolism to heat yourself up. And what you'll find is that what makes you, you know, shiver or get just to the point of shivering before shivering today will be different tomorrow and the next day if you keep doing cold because your body will adapt mm-hmm. and it adapts quite dramatically. Um, so I think, yeah, our bodies are really incredibly resilient, um, and you know, cold and thermal stress actually in the thermal homeostasis has been, you know, a central issue for all life on Earth since there was life on Earth. And um, 
if you think about, you know, we talked about, you know, like, you know, water on Earth being liquid. Well, the Earth exists in what's called the Goldilocks zone. And that's the orbit around the sun that's not too hot and it's not too cold so liquid water can exist. And if you look at the evolution of life and the whole story of life, and I'm actually writing a, um, it's going to be my third children's book, um, called The Story of Water. And it talks about how water came to Earth and, and created evolution. And it's, it's actually the story how the, the hottest water in the solar system met the coldest water in the solar system. <laughs> so this whole idea of, you know, thermogenesis and, and homeostasis for water is central for all life. And, and it's fascinating. I've been researching you know, how water came to Earth. And the, our current scientific understanding is there were two sources of water. There was the original, when the molten Earth was forming, when the, gal- you know, the solar system was very young, there was you know, hydrogen and oxygen and sort of water that was mixed up in the molten mass of lava and, and molten rock. But there was also water out on these... Um, carbonaceous chondrite comets out past Neptune. And these really cold water, imagine in the far depths of space out, in, you know, out past Neptune. And there was what they call the, the late heavy bombardment. So all these comets from the outer solar system bombarded the inner solar system mm. with ice crystals and comets. Mm. And that brought a lot of water to Earth. So you had this really cold water coming from the outer solar system meeting this really hot water, mm. you know, hottest water in the solar system on Earth. Mm. And they then combined and you know and were bound by gravity so gravity held that water you know on the planet and the fact that earth has a magnetic field um a strong magnetic field which protected the atmosphere from cosmic rays from the sun so for example mars doesn't have a strong magnetic field so a lot of the water just gets evaporated off the planet earth earth's magnetic field protects the magnetosphere protects the water so that allowed liquid water to happen on earth and then what happened it spread you know the water um formed into steam, created the atmosphere, mixed all around, um, eventually cooled and came down as liquid water, formed you know, rivers and lakes and streams and eventually the oceans. And then we had a liquid um, water planet, but then the hottest water on Earth met the coldest water on Earth. And the hottest water on Earth was actually at the very bottom of the oceans coming out of hot springs. Mm. And even now, today, that happens where you can have water that's 400 degrees Celsius wow. that's coming out. And because of the, the, the pressure, you know, 10 kilometres down at the bottom of the Mariana Trench or wherever it is, um, it's still liquid at 400 degrees Celsius. And that's coming from the Earth. It's sort of welling up from, from deep within the, the mantle. Mm. So it's been superheated. And it's also been super saturated with minerals because you've got this super hot water that's come through the Earth and it's carrying a lot of... Um, actually, a lot of the mineral deposits that we mine... Uh, deposited by hot springs because it mm. takes out the ore and then deposits it. And then the coldest water on Earth is also at the bottom of the oceans because water has this unusual... I mean, there's 72 anomalies that we don't understand with water, scientific anomalies that we can't explain. And one of them is that cold water sinks and ice, when water freezes, it, it becomes less dense and floats. Mm. And that's, that's super important because if, if ice was more dense than water, the oceans would freeze from the bottom up and you wouldn't have, you know, that would, you had this frozen planet. Um, but, but the fact that ice is less dense means you can have water that's minus 22 degrees Celsius, super dense water that's actually still liquid. And that's, that is because it's super dense. It floats to the bottom of the oceans. So at the very far depths of the oceans, you have this super cold water meeting this super hot water. And, this, and that creates this huge range of temperatures and pressures and also solutes because of all the dissolved minerals in the water. Mm. 
and that's where life first happened, where you had the um, organic chemistry forming, where you had this primordial soup mm. that eventually turned in. So you know, that was like the meeting of hot and cold water. And I call it, you know, life intelligent gel. Mm-hmm. You had this gel phase of water. And um, uh, um, there's a professor, um, Gerald Pollack, mm. who talks about the, the fourth phase of water beyond solid, liquid and vapour, which is the gel phase. And that's where water actually, like in our living cells, we have the you know, protoplasm or the cytoplasm. It's, a, it's like a jelly. Um, and what um, Professor Pollack um, talks about is that when you have an interface between um, a hydrophilic surface, and he uses um, you know, different sort of um, plastics or things, but in any, any surface, the water molecules at the edge of that surface will line up. And when they line up, they form a structure that's no longer H2O, actually, if you count the, the ratio, it's actually H3O2. And this is the gel phase of water. Mm-hmm. And that gel phase of water, it excludes solutes. So that he calls it the exclusion zone. So there's a zone at the very edge of a surface that's pure water. So any salt or anything gets pushed away. There's actually an electrical potential difference that happens. And this gel phase of water um, is the basis of life. And um, the, you know, the properties of water at that interface change so you have this you know this um structured water if you like and if you think about again um our bodies and living systems you know we're, we're made up of all these interfaces right? so membranes mitochondria you think of all the the christi the you know the mm. mitochondrial surfaces um you know you've got this huge increased surface area created by our membranes and lining all these membranes is this exclusion zone water this structured water so water is, is that lacking in our common drinking tap water? Yeah, well, um, well, I mean, our common drinking water is. I mean, it's depends. Been stripped, right? It's been. Well, it depends what what you do. I mean, we actively put in poison into our drinking water. Mm. I mean, we chlorinate it, mm. and the reason why they use chlorine is because chlorine's a really good poison. So you know this issue. You know, how, I mean, how much poison do you want to be drinking? Um, and the exclusion zone water can be formed. I mean. Um, Exclusion zone water will be increased by infrared radiation. By exclusion zone, you mean uh, this filtered and well, this well, any water. If you've got any water and yeah. you um, and they've done these experiments in the lab where you can and I think it was a haphazard circumstance in Gerald Pollack's lab. He's at University of Washington in the US, and he's got a great book, The Force Phase of Water, and a, a TED Talk, which I really recommend people to watch. And I was actually lucky enough, I spoke at the conference, which was the International Conference on the Physics, Chemistry and Biology of Water um, in 2016. I was at that conference in Bulgaria mm-hmm. and got to meet all these top water scientists. And these include you know, quantum physicists and mm-hmm. biologists and all these you know, incredible water, water people. Mm-hmm. Um, so he talks about how in his lab, one of the um, they were studying this exclusion zone. And normally you'd think there might be a little barrier at the edge of a surface that, that is this pure water. But it's like what they found was that it's like millions of atoms thick, not just one or two atoms thick. So it's really much thicker than you'd ever predict. And then one of his students had a light, and when he shone the light on the water, it increased the size of this exclusion zone where the, you know, the salt was pushed out. And they realised that the light, or the infrared radiation, was adding energy to mm-hmm. the water, and the water was reacting with this. And normally we think of low-grade infrared energy as waste energy. You can't... It's, you know, entropy. Entropy ends up with, you know, disorder and, and this waste radiant heat. But water actually takes this radiant heat and actually uses it to structure itself. 
yeah. and to purify itself, and that inc- increases exclusion zones. So even, um, I mean, the heat we generate in their metabolism helps mm. to do that. Going into the sun, infrared saunas and all those sort of things may actually increase um, infrared and then, you know, exclusion zone. But I think it's... Um, it's not as simple as, you know, you buy this water filter and take this water and it's going to be more exclusion zone, you're going to feel better. It's, it's a whole process, biological process of how we interact with water. But certainly water that's um, inside fruits and vegetables, that's organic water, that's been more structured than water you're going to get from a tap or, or some, some other surface. And all the light that grows on the pl- plants and the vegetables, that's being stored in the water molecules of those, is that right? Well, the... Um, process of photosynthesis actually takes water and and light you know photons from the sun and carbon dioxide and it produces oxygen and, and glucose so these these are what I call the five elements of life you know um, water light carbon dioxide glucose and oxygen and um, I've actually sort of framed that into what I call extreme wellness programs where you can um, go to the extremes of each of these elements. So we talked about the hot and cold, mm. which is going to the extremes of temperature. You know, mm. from you know, from hot into a sauna to or hot into a shower and into a cold ice bath or a cold shower. But you can do the same with water. I mean, you can dehydrate yourself or overhydrate yourself. You can do the same with oxygen, where you can um, hyperventilate, mm. um, which increases oxygen. And then you can even do a valsalva manoeuvre, where you take a big breath in, close the back of your throat, and push. Like you know, like mm-hmm. you're trying to expel your and that's bowels. That's an essential component. People, well, it's not an essential component, but that just increases the partial pressure of oxygen in your blood. And so, you, like when people only hyperventilate, there can be some risks with that. No, well, hi- hyper. Well, again, hyper, hyper, hyperventilation is an interesting issue. So, if you're, I'm talking about purposely yoga. Oh, okay, purposely hyperventilating, and then not countering that with okay. hyperventilation. Yeah. So yeah. So I think it's really good to balance it. So I mean, you can couple a bar to you or something where you hyperventilate mm. or you, you want to do a kumbuka or you want to do a... Um, Even some people are doing the Wim Hof method and not doing the breath retention. Yes. Aspect. Yeah. And I think that's really important that you, you have both aspects. So um, you want to go from the, you know, the point of, you know, hyper oxygenation to hypo, you know, hypoxia. Mm. And, and the Wim Hof method, I mean, you can actually get become quite hypoxic, um, I mean, even to the point of passing out, but as long as you're doing it, you know, lying down or sitting, passing out is not an issue, but you certainly shouldn't do it underwater or, you know, driving or, or you know, when, you, when you, you know, you can't afford to sort of, you know, black out for a minute. Um, but so that, I mean, so you can really change dramatically. And, and I've done this with, a, you know, wearing a pulse oximeter and you can, I can get my oxygen saturation to below 50%. Now, in a hospital, you know, when I was working in hospitals, if it went below 95%, you know, the alarms start going off. Mm. Um, but then you can do the same with carbon dioxide, where you hyperventilate, you can, you can expel a lot of your carbon dioxide. You actually get quite dizzy and you get, you know, um, you know really lightheaded and a bit tingly. And, and if you do it a lot, you can actually get tetany, because you, you, what happens when you're um, expelling carbon dioxide, uh, you're creating most of well, most of the acid in your blood is carbonic acid made by dissolved carbon dioxide mm-hmm. so when you're getting rid of carbon dioxide you're getting rid of most of the acid in your blood and you're making your, all your blood alkaline mm-hmm. and when your blood's alkaline it'll bind calcium and when this binds calcium the pro, well, the proteins will bind calcium there's not enough calcium for muscle contraction or muscle relaxation so your muscles start to con- contract 
So you st- you'll start to feel tingling around your mouth mm-hmm. um, and maybe your fingers and toes, but then you, you, you can get what they call, you know, T-Rex hands or claw hands where you get these contractions in your, mm. your arm muscles. Now, that's not dangerous, but it's just saying you've probably overdone a little bit. You know, you can st- back off with the hyperventilation mm-hmm. then. So that's really low carbon dioxide. But then you want to counter that by raising your carbon dioxide, and you can do that just through breath holding. Mm. And you'll find that if you've done a, you know, 30, 40, 50 big breaths where you've expelled carbon dioxide, you become quite alkaline, that you'll be able to hold your breath for twice as long as you normally could, maybe even more. Mm. And I've done workshops where, you know, just people off the street um, with no other training have all held their breath for two minutes, Mm. where before they might only be able to hold their breath for 20, 30 seconds. And that's just with a few rounds of breathing and a bit of coaching. Mm. You know, everyone has the ability to hold their breath for a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. The the other thing you you can... really immediately show an effect for yourself is if you just see how many push-ups you can do in one bout, might be 10 or 20 or whatever the number is, might be two, Um, but then you hyperventilate and then you hold your breath on the exhale, so not a a forced exhale, just what they call functional residual capacity, just Mm -hmm. a comfortable breath hold, and then try and do push-ups again, and most commonly you'll double the number of push-ups you can do. And that's because the thing that stops you doing push-ups normally is the build-up of lactic acid. Mm-hmm. So it's a build-up of you know, acid and you know, waste products in your body. But if you're hyperventilating and you're starting from very alkaline position, it takes a lot longer for that lactic acid to build up and to stop you doing the exercise. Mm-hmm. So you can go from, um, yeah, from um, quite alkaline and then your, the activity is increasing your carbon dioxide level, but it's taking a lot longer. So you can... You know, double your breath hold time and you can double your push-up mm. rate. Why is the lactic acid an obstacle in doing more? Because it hurts. It hurts. Okay. You know, that, that's when your yeah, muscles start to sure. burn and that hurts okay. and you think, okay, I have to stop now. Okay. But if you're starting from a very alkaline position, mm-hmm. then, then it takes longer for that lactic acid to start sort of burning because your, your body, um, you reach the capacity of your body to process that because mm. yeah. you've got the different um, aero, um, or anaerobic and aerobic respiration. So... Mm-hmm. When you're burning glucose with oxygen and you're getting carbon dioxide, that's um, you know, that's very effective. But for short-term energy, especially if you've got breath holding, yeah. you'll you'll go down the lactate pathway. You don't get as many ATP molecules; it's not as effective. But it's very very quick energy. Mm-hmm. But then you have to process that lactate usually in the liver, um, and then you'll push it back. It. Yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. So it's um an exercise people can just do at home with you know changing their carbon dioxide levels yeah. and and just on the topic of kind of safety and just clarifying everything mm-hmm. if you're going to do like even the cold water hokey pokey or any cold water exposure mm-hmm. you must maintain calm like yeah you, 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 you want to be comfortable you want to be really calm and, and you're going to be stressing you're not it's that's you know, right it's not going to be um, well, you want to get to a comfortable stress and this is where it's you know everyone's individual and you you want to be in touch with your own physiology and say what is a comfortable stress so when you so say with a cold water hokey pokey start with a hot shower and then just go to a cool shower and you know the the, the, the verse of the cold water hokey pokey is keep breathing calmly and smile to yourself and you want to have that inner smile and that okay i'm calm i'm okay this is all good and as long as you're maintaining that that's what it's all about exactly right and it's a fun thing to do like well if you do it you'll start the day singing and dancing and feeling really vibrant and alive and you'll feel like a badass if i can do a culture every morning what else you know the world what else is the world going to show you you know so that's absolutely right so and and with all these practices whether it's breath holding or push-ups or anything you want to do it well within your comfort range 
But then what you'll find is that as you do this, your comfort range will naturally expand. And there's a, another really strong sort of um, association with yoga where with yoga, you want to go to the edge of your stretch or your comfort with a holding a posture. You don't want to push – if you push beyond that, you're going to tear a muscle and hurt yourself. But what you'll find is if you do it every day in stretch, whether it's just touching your toes or tricking or whatever pose you're doing, you'll find that, um, wow, I can do it further today. You know, your capacity will naturally expand without you having to push it. So you want to reach the edge of your comfort zone but not exceed it. And this is what I call extreme wellness practices where you want to you – know, and, I mean, the other thing was with hunger, feasting and fasting. You know, you want to you know, feel hungry but not to go overboard, mm. but just to find the edge of your um, – yeah, your comfort zone with all the – the, these basic physiological processes, because when you're doing that, I mean, you can go to the comfort zone with other things like, I mean, it's social discomfort, you know, public speaking, other things you can challenge yourself to do. Mm. But when you're doing the extremes of oxygen, carbon dioxide, water, glucose and temperature, that's every one of your cells that's participating. Yeah, so it's a way to talk in the language of your cells. Mm. Can we just go more into the benefits of cold exposure? You mentioned that study of the less sick days, so the immune mm -hmm. system's increased. How has the immune system increased? Well, that, well, we still really don't fully understand that. Um, I mean, we know with, um, say, you know, real cold exposure, you get an adrenaline response because it's a sympathetic yeah. response. And, you know, so adrenaline will um, suppress your immune system. And, and if you think about it evolutionarily, um, you know, you don't want to start healing when you're still running away from the tiger. So, you know, okay. when you've got the sympathetic system going, you're fight and flight and you're mm -hmm. running away, it's only when you're settled down, relaxed, that you want the immune system to come and mop up any um, damage. So adrenaline suppresses um, the immune system, and that's why, and so does cortisol, and that's why they use cortisone as a immunosuppressant. Mm. Um, so this is a way of turning on your own natural mm. immunosuppressant. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, Wim Hof took it to the, the next level where, you know, he did this famous experiment where they injected him with E. coli lipoprotein, which is the outer, outer sort of surface of a, a bacteria that makes your body think you've got a, a bacterial blood infection. And normally if you've got that, you feel terrible. I mean, you're sweating and aches and pains. It's like you've got this huge you know, blood infection. Um, and they use that as a test for immunosuppressant drugs. Mm. So they're testing these mm. drugs. They'll, they'll give you this lipoprotein, see if you get the reaction, and see if the drugs can control that reaction. Well, Wim Hof said, oh, I can control it myself just mm. using my breathing in my mind power, yeah. and he did. And then they thought, okay, well, you're just a freak, aren't you? Yeah. Um, he said, no, I'm not. I can do it. I can teach anyone to do it. And Wim's really arrogant and amazing because yeah. he's just got such confidence in his own ability. And they said, wow, you can teach other people? He said, yeah, sure. Now, how long would that take, a year or two? Oh, four days. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he, he was sort of, you know, he's just channeling this. He, you know, he hasn't hadn't done it before, but he, he then took a group of naive people who had never done training before for four days. He took them to a... Um, a training uh, place in Poland that he has, Mount Schneska, and, and they did the breathing and they did the cold exposure. They ended up doing a three-hour hike up this mountain in minus 25 degrees in their board shorts, mm -hmm. and he knew once they did that and they were at the top dancing and feeling comfortable in minus 25 in board shorts that they were ready. Yeah. They went back to the, the research facility and they all got injected and they didn't mm -hmm. respond and they controlled their immune system. So I think there's a lot going on there. It's not just about the adrenaline response. Mm -hmm. It's about the, the whole um, mental attitude yeah, and, and the, you know, you know, you're not panicking and, and that. And, you know, 
the whole field of psychoneuroimmunology, the, the link between our mind, our immune system, and our nervous system, and our you know our brain, is still you know in its infancy. We know you know there's you know, the same neurotransmitters and receptors in our brain as in our gut and our immune immune system. So we're still unraveling how that happens, but we know it certainly does happen. Mm-hmm. And there's also cases of people who have been using these techniques to um, overcome injury, overcome pain, overcome illness. Mm-hmm. And um, we've just done some research on people who've trained in the Wim Hof method, and we're just writing that up for publication at the moment. But people are getting incredible responses to different illnesses and um, you know, medical conditions from using these methods. Yeah, wonderful. Okay. And I've heard that it suppresses the mTOR pathway, which is the, that pathway that you get from protein, excess protein. And well, there, there's so many different biochemical pathways mm. that it does. Yes, yeah, so mTOR is one of those, um, but it's it's just the start of the story. Mm. Um, yeah. As I say, because you're really communicating with every cell, but it's not just the mm. cells. You're communicating with the mitochondria, and you know, the mitochondria used to be their own little independent organisms. You know, they were little prokaryotic organisms that got embedded into these, you know, eukaryotic organisms. Um, and you can up and down regulate mitochondria much quicker than you can up and down regulate other processes in your body. So they call that mitogenesis. Mm-hmm. So when, if you want to, you need to make more heat or more muscle energy, you can upregulate mitochondria very, very quickly. And one of the other things that um, this does is that... Um, if you think about hypoxia, that's a, a, a real cellular stress. And one of the analogies I like to use is um, if you think about your home and, you know, if you're in a comfortable Western home and, you know, you're hanging out on the couch and there's heaps of food in the fridge and in your fruit bowl and people keep on visiting you and bringing over more food, what happens is in the back of the fridge, all these things with end up past their use-by date. Mm. And you end up with, you know, in your veggie thing, and your fruit bowl, you know, old fruit can go there and maybe some fruit flies will come and they start to get a bit mouldy. But you don't worry because, you know, there's no incentive to clean it up. But suddenly if you can't get out, the shops are closed, no one brings food over anymore, you're forced to go into and sort out your, your, your larder mm. and eat the food that's edible, throw out the food that's not, mm. you know, and sort things out. Well, the same happens in your cells but it happens on a much faster time scale. Mm-hmm. So if your cells, you know, normally there's heaps of glucose around, there's heaps of oxygen around, they can afford to be lazy. They can afford to have proteins that are past their use-by date that are still hanging out there and not working properly. Mm-hmm. Um, but suddenly there's no oxygen around, your cells freak out. That's their lifeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so any free oxygen radicals, they get mopped up. Mm-hmm. Um, any proteins that are malformed get um, autophaged. Um, any cells that aren't, you know, working pretty well, you know, they're precancerous or they're aging or they're aberrant, you know, cells, they get apoptosed, which is, you know, cell death. Mm-hmm. So it forces your body, your physiology, your cells to actually clean up their house yeah, yeah. in the same way you'd clean up your house if suddenly there was no food coming in and you were starving and you had to mm-hmm. sort out your food. So that, that happens on a very, very quick time frame with hypoxia. So that's a hypoxic stress is, you know, serious stress in your body, but it actually, as I say, forces your cells to become more efficient in how they handle oxygen. So yeah, you become, your cells become more efficient. And one of the other things that we're just, you know, starting to understand is that you have this incredible ability to regenerate tissue. And that's from your stem cells. And I think the holy grail of stem cell research or regenerative medicine is to how to 
regrow new tissue. And the stem cells are these multipotent cells that live um, deep inside your bone marrow in these hypoxic niches. Stem cells don't like a lot of oxygen, so normally they like a hypoxic environment. But when your whole body becomes hypoxic in these stressful situations, those stem cells can start to to leave these hypoxic niches and travel around your whole circulation and look for things to do. And what do they want to do? They want to regenerate tissue. So you can actually start regenerating, um, you know, damaged, aged, because you've done all this apoptosis and, you know, autophagy. So the stem cells can come in and then say, okay, we can build here. We can, you know, there's something for us to do here. Now, that's still early days to understand that. But if you look at some of the responses that people get, um, are getting from these techniques, and, and I, I know that personally. I mean, I've had multiple injuries to my body. Mm. And since I've been doing, you know, breathing and hot and cold exposure, you know, the aches and pains become less. You become more mobile. So it's... um. You know, there's, there's a huge potential for, I think, a lot of these methods um, using, um, you know, you don't need you know, multi-million dollar drugs and stuff. All you need is to know how to turn on your own physiology. I mean, everything's within our biology, but it's how do we access that? How do we um, turn it on? And something that triggered when you were talking about kind of cleaning up the cells in an efficient way was that sunlight does that well. Is that right? Near-infrared light as opposed to, for example exposed to blue light artificial light i don't know have you well i mean light light is super interesting and the different spectrum so um so infrared which will create heat is is really good for us um i mean blue light's really good in the morning but it's not good at night time and mm. and you know the end of the day so you know i really recommend blue light filters on you know get flat you know there's free you know, flux and other software you can get for your computer and night thing for your screens because a lot of screens project blue light and that's not a great thing at night time but it is actually a good thing in the morning so actually to be out in sunrise and and so we're very sensitive to light spectrums and the infrared radiation that we're just still understanding it because our cells you know actually emit light there's biophotons that um you know get emitted with cellular metabolism the cells talk to each other using these optic you know um light um emissions in addition to you know um, electrical conduction, you know, nervous conduction, and all those other things, you know, gap junctions and other cellular connections. So we're, we're still really unravelling um, cellular communication, I think. But these really simple processes of, of going back to, yeah, the, the basic elements of, you know, oxygen, carbon dioxide, water, glucose and temperature um, enables us to access these primitive processes that go back to the as i say the start of life on earth Mm. that all life has had to adapt to and especially temperatures all life had to adapt to that um but we don't really often explore our own adaptation Mm. so i i I, you know recommend people just you know what are your limits and and a lot of people think oh so i'm this i'm you know i love ice bathing i love you know saunas which you know i i enjoy that but what i really love is knowing once you've found the limits of hot or cold or oxygen or hypoxia whatever it allows you actually to find your homeostatic point Mm. and that way you can relax deeper in the same way that you know the end of a yoga class the shavasana the relaxation you get at the end of the yoga class is more profound than if you just came to the yoga class and just Mm. lay down and, and relaxed so it's by um exploring the edges of your physiology your extremes it allows you to go deeper to experience extreme comfort and extreme relaxation which is unique to everyone, and then begin to experience that homeostatic state all the time. 
Well, they do it all the time, but it's like, how profound can you experience that? And you know, establish I talk, that state and maintain it in everything you do. Well, by establishing it, it means it's like exercising your core. If you've got a really strong core, you can do more. If you've got a really strong homeostatic balance with your physiology, it allows you to do so much more. Yeah. There's a saying that the greatest movement comes from the stillest point. Mm. And if you look at a gymnast or a dancer um, or a martial artist, they'll have this incredible movement of their body, but they'll be able to keep their dunty end, mm. you know, their core just below their navel. Mm. That's the point that your body will pivot around when you somersault or when you kick mm. or jump or pirouette. So by having that core, or even jugglers, they talk about having your your core really still mm. to enable you to juggle and do all these other things. So by having the you know, very still core, mm. it ha- allows you to do the most active, conscious movement. Mm. So that's the same thing with your physiology. Mm. By having a really strong homeostatic mm. um, point of balance, you get, you get this great uh, flexibility of response for the rest of your mm. physiology. And you actually get that really strongly with this um, Wim Hof breathing, or the, I call it actually five-phase breathing. I mm. treat it a little bit differently than Wim does. Where, And you know, there, are, there are five phases. So the first phase is the natural flowing breath, where you're not even conscious of your breath. Breath is just flowing in and out. Um, and then you have to make a conscious decision to hyperventilate. And that's a staccato breath. You know, so it's big breath in and then just relaxed out. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Backwards and forwards, you might do 30, 40, 50 of these mm-hmm. staccato in and out breaths. And during that phase, you're expelling carbon dioxide, your, your blood's becoming more alkaline. You get it, doesn't you, matter, nose or mouth. Um, well, we, we more say, you know, just get it in you. It doesn't matter which hole you use, just get it in you. I mean, ideally, I think, you know, nose in, you know, breathing from your nose is better, it has, yeah. has some advantages, but, you know, it's as you're comfortable. And when okay. you're doing big volumes, you know, it's, you know, if you've got a blocked nose, it doesn't mean you can't do it. Yeah. So you can just use your mouth, that's fine. But you really want to expel as much carbon dioxide to the point where you're a bit lightheaded. Mm-hmm. And then you make another conscious, and, and actually that's a bit of, it's a dysphoric experience when you're, You've hyperventilated and you're a bit lightheaded and you're a bit mm. tingly. It's not unpleasant, but it's not pleasant. It's a little bit dysphoric. Mm-hmm. But then you make a decision, okay, I'm going to stop hyperventilating now and hold my breath. And then you, then on, the, on the relaxed exhale, you hold your breath. So this is the, the, sort of the chaos phase where you don't know when you're going to breathe again. Mm. So it's sort of a bit of uncertainty there. But you hold your breath. Dizziness will go away pretty much. And then, and then it actually takes about 30 to 60 seconds for the dizziness to, to slowly go away. And you'll find that... Um, that the oxygen level, um, which is goes up to you know ninety nine hundred percent, you know when you're hyperventilating, takes about a minute to start dropping, mm-hmm. and there's a whole lot of we can geek out here on the Bohr effect, where when your blood is alkaline, hemoglobin binds tighter to oxygen. Mm-hmm. So when you're hyperventilating, you've got heaps of oxygen in your blood, but it's bound to to hemoglobin and it's not available to your cells. Okay. So it's actually like a pseudo hypoxia. Mm. So even though there's heaps of oxygen around, the cells are actually getting hypoxic. So they're actually burning anaerobically and building up lactate. And that lactate, so even when you've, you've held your breath, um, your c- cells are still burning anaer- anaerobically for a while until the lactate can build up, changes the pH enough to release, for the, the hemoglobin to then release the oxygen. Once the hemoglobin's releasing the oxygen, that oxygen gets burnt, produces carbon dioxide, then the carbonic acid builds up, and you have the acid build up to balance it. Mm-hmm. And then, so you can, you can hold your breath for a couple of minutes, and then you get to a bit of discomfort, a bit of dysphoria, where you've got this you know, carbon dioxide build up, and carbon dioxide is the drive to breathe, not lack of oxygen. Mm-hmm. So it's, 
no excess. Yeah, so, so as the carbon dioxide builds up, that gives you this drive to breathe. Mm-hmm. And if the oxygen actually drops below your conscious level before that carbon dioxide's built up, you'll pass out. Mm-hmm. But generally you won't if you're doing it safely, um, you know, if you're not doing it too extreme. And even if you do pass out, you'll come to get, you know, you come to it straight away if you're comfortable, um, you know, on a couch or something. But then as the carbon dioxide builds up, you have another dysphoric experience where I really want to breathe. And there are ways you can even extend that a little bit by relaxing yourself, where, and actually Simon Borg-Olivia, good mm-hmm. colleague, colleague, friend, dear friend of mine, he, he taught me this, where at the end of your breath hold, if you want to extend a little bit f- further, it's like taking the, the relaxed exhale before you go into cold water. If you mm. twig, t- um, sort of wiggle your fingers and toes, mm. um, move your belly in and out, um, and make sort of little breathing movements, it's sort of telling your body you're relaxed. So even though you're busting to take a breath, mm. if you do that, you'll be able to extend your breath hold mm. a little bit longer. And then if you really want to go for it, the, the next thing you can do is then do a full body contraction. Mm-hmm. So contract every muscle in your body and then do a valsalva manoeuvre. So you're pushing mm-hmm. everything really hard and that'll, ex- that'll make more carbon dioxide, but it'll also extend another 10 seconds your breath hold. <laughs> so you can really push your breath hold really hard. If you, mm-hmm. First of all, you're relaxing, you know, wiggle your fingers and toes, belly pump. Mm-hmm. Uh, flutter your eyelids is another one that helps do that. Mm-hmm. So you're not normally fluttering your eyelids when you're panicking because yeah. you know, sympathetic nervous system is trying to make your you know, eyes mm-hmm. dilate and run. So you Telling your body, I'm relaxed. Okay, I know there's no air, but you know you're okay. So that'll extend your breath hold a little bit more. But then, you know, at the end of that, you take a breath, and then this is the lyrical recovery breathing, where you, you know, it's like a joyous thing. Wow, suddenly I've got oxygen. So you have this flood of oxygen back, and the breaths will be a bit deeper. If you want to prolong it even more, you can take a, a big recovery breath, release that, and then hold your breath again, and you increase yeah. that hypoxic um, period. But then you have the recovery lyrical breathing. And then that will naturally transla- transfer into what I call the stillness breath, where you, you're actively doing nothing. And, and in that period, what you find is you have this very, very deep relaxation and your pulse rate will drop about 10 beats per minute below your resting pulse. Mm-hmm. You won't feel like breathing much at all. You'll be very, very still. But also your mind will be super quiet. And what happens there is that's actually a physiological response. And it's also... Almost your your body is forcing you to meditate because when you're hypoxic, when you're doing your breath hold, your mind naturally turns off because your your brain normally takes twenty percent, twenty five percent of all the oxygen in your in your body, mm-hmm. just through thinking. So when when you're hypoxic, one of the you know um, survival mechanisms is turn your brain off mm. and save the oxygen for your heart and your lungs and just to keep yourself alive. So that's sort of it's a metabolic trigger for quiet mental activity so when you've got into this recovery breath and the mm. and the quiet breathing phase the, the peaceful breathing um you're actually mentally really quiet mm. you're hardly breathing you're po- and i don't know any other technique actually that you can drop your resting pulse rate yeah. you know? so i mean for myself my resting pulse is about 55 but I, I can do this i can get my pulse resting pulse down to about 42 mm. when i'm doing this peaceful breathing phase and i like to say it's, it's when you're actively doing nothing mm. So and and that's that's you that's the point of homeostasis, where your body's reached this point of you know mm. total balance, mm. um, and it's blissful. It's really mm. euphoric. So you've gone through these periods of dysphoria, mm. um, when you've hyperventilated and held your breath, to this euphoria when you're in this homeostatic phase. Mm. And there's also a process there when because when you're dysphoric, you release this chemical called dynorphin. 
and dynorphin is one of the endogenous opiates that gets released with discomfort. But what dynorphin does, it increases the number and the sensitivity of endorphin receptors. So by having that discomfort, it increases your ability to have comfort later on. Mm. So it enhances that, that euphoria with the quiet breathing um, by having this sort of discomfort in, um, earlier on. And that, for me, that's the, that's the gold. I mean, that's the, the aim of doing these breathing techniques is to experience that really blissful, yeah. total comfort. Um, it's not just, you know, push myself hard, how long can I do a breath hold? And it's not about the numbers of doing a breath hold. You want to do it totally within your comfort range. Again, your comfort range, will, your comfort range will expand, and everyone's different at different times. You'll be different in the morning than you will in the afternoon. Mm. You'll be different if, you have, if you're a bit mentally agitated. Mm. You'll have a different breath hold if you eat differently. Mm. If you have an alkaline diet, that'll actually change the pH balance. Mm. It'll actually change how you'll be able to do a hyperventilation breath holding session. Mm. And you actually can tune in then to say, okay, I'm mentally agitated, that's what happened here, or I've just, you know, yeah. ate some acidic-forming foods, I had a sugar hit, mm. and then, so, you know, it, yeah. it changes um, day to day. But what it does, it tunes you into your own physiology. Yeah. It increases your physiological capacity by doing that regularly, like a regular yoga practice. You're actually mm. reaching the edge of your, of your physiology, which increases your ability to reach that point of homeostasis, which gives you a balanced, fixed starting-off point for doing anything else you want in your life. Yeah. And that's, you know, what, what they do before meditation. That's why they do pranayama and yoga before meditation. Absolutely. Still the mind and then you can go straight deep into it. Okay, beautiful. Now, can we talk about hot water as a therapeutic measure? I know mm-hmm. spring, hot springs are common. Typically, we know because of the mineral content. Mm-hmm. Things like magnesium, sulfur. I know sulfur is fantastic for skin. Well, hot springs are really different. And, you know, there's lithium springs and sulfur springs and iron springs and, and um, magnesium. So, I mean, hot water is incredible therapy. I mean, I, and I've always loved bathing. I mean, it's, mm. it's been, you know, something I've done all my life. And I've become very involved now with research into bathing, both mm. in sauna bathing and comparing infrared saunas to Finnish saunas, but also hot springs bathing. And I've, what are Finnish saunas? Comp- Finnish saunas like a traditional, usually they're wood-fired yeah. saunas or with the hot rocks where you put okay. the steam on the hot rocks okay. compared to an infrared sauna, which is more a modern so technique. So it's not, not far nor long infrared? Oh, sorry, not far or near infrared? Well, it's going to be infrared energy, but it's not just emitting infrared is just you're using heat from hot okay. rocks that yeah. usually um mm. are traditionally fi- um, done through wood wood fire mm. and then you're putting you know you put steam onto the rocks yeah. and you get this blast of the steam so that's like the traditional okay. saunas um and that can be a dry sauna or it can be a you know steam sauna mm. whereas infrared saunas is using infrared panels just yeah. to, to emit and they say that infrared saunas um will create sweating at a lower temperature therefore mm. they're more comfortable there's never been any direct comparative study that I know of, and we've just I've just published a review with one of my PhD students, um, who's a medical doctor, Dr. Joy Hussain. We've just published a which is open access; people can access mm-hmm. that a, a, a systematic review of the clinical effects of you know, sauna bathing. Um, and now we're doing actually a clinical trial um, where we're looking at. Um, infrared sauna compared to finished sauna compared to exercise and we're looking at sweat and the metabolomics of sweat and the different toxicants that come out in mm-hmm. sweat and right. the cardiovascular effects and all, all those sort of things so that's mm-hmm. ongoing research mm-hmm. but um but heat is you know really therapeutic yeah. um but then when you get into hot springs um i mean immersion in water can be more relaxing than immersion in air yeah. because you've got the weightlessness of water 
for every 30 centimetres of water, you've got, um, I can't remember the, the figure off the top of my head, but you've got the hydrostatic pressure that will actually, you know, surround your um, limbs. And just like we talked about with the cold water after the hot water, it pushes blood into your core. Okay. Well, being immersed in water will push, will put compress your limbs and push more blood into your core. So you get about 700 more, 700 mils of extra blood in your core. Um, and you actually get uh, increased efficiency of your heart pumping, but your heart is actually more relaxed. Mm. So you get this blood being pushed around your internal organs because um, they've got extra blood there. And you've also got this effect where your blood's pumping, your heart's pumping more, so you've got this increased cardiovascular effect, but your body's not making extra waste products. So normally if you're running, you know, your heart's pumping more, but you're producing, you know, Waste products, more carbon dioxide and more, you know, muscle breakdown, creatinine kinase, or you know, whatever you're, you're, you get these breakdown products. When you're in a hot bath or a sauna, you're vasodilated, mm. you're hypercardiovascular, um, you know, activity. So you, you you've increased your perfusion, mm. but you're not making waste products. So you're actually flushing your lymphatics and your your blood mm. and your liver can then process any any toxicants that are built up. Mm. So it's like a it's a there's a detoxification process there, um, and a relaxation process. So there's a cardiovascular effect from the hydrostatic effects. There's a weightlessness that takes the weight off your joints. They've actually found that um, that's really good for people with heart disease. So people who can't otherwise exercise can get a good cardiovascular workout from just being in a sauna or a hot mm. bath because they've um, increased their cardiovascular activity. Mm. Um, without any um, you know, stress on their limbs. And then, and it's, it's actually interesting to me that there's been so little research on the mineral effects of water mm. um, in terms of clinical you know, research on humans. Now, there may be some, I, I know the French did a lot of research on this and, and in um, the Germans and balneotherapy has a you know, long tradition throughout Asia, um, for Europe, um, so, but in terms of balneotherapy research, and they'll say that, you know, a sulfur spring is better for arthritis and a lithium spring is better for this and that. I haven't seen really good research that documents that. Certainly, we know that magnesium is um, absorbed very well transdermally, and most people are magnesium deficient. And that's because we don't eat enough leafy green vegetables. Mm-hmm. And if you think about magnesium, you think about actually hemoglobin is the center of the he- um Iron is the centre of the haemoglobin molecule. Mm-hmm. Well, magnesium is the centre of the chlorophyll molecule. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just like, you know, the base of all plants. Yeah, so of all plants. so yeah. when you're eating green leafy vegetables, you're eating, you know, yeah. cl- you know the green yeah. pigment is chlorophyll, which has magnesium at the centre of it. Mm-hmm. But because we don't have enough green leafy plants, most people are magnesium deficient. Magnesium is needed for oh, so many different processes in the body, muscle relaxation, etc. Um but you can absorb it quite well transdermally. Mm. Um, so whether it's an Epsom salts bath, and there's you know, debates whether it's magnesium chloride or magnesium sulfate is better. Again, you know, there's, I haven't seen really good clinical research, um, but I mean, I know it, it feels good. Mm. Um, and um, you actually get an extra bo- added buoyancy when you add, add the salt as well, which you know, has an extra weightlessness, mm. extra, extra effect. And we've just done. I've just. I've got another PhD student who's doing hot springs research, and we've done some big surveys, and we find that people who use a you know bathe in natural hot spring water sleep much better. Mm. You know, because actually, I mean, it tires you out. Just, yeah, just. Yeah. I mean, you're sitting. You're sitting around relaxing, mm. um, but you've, you've had this cardiovascular workout. Mm. So, but there's also, I think, over and above that exercise effect, there's the 
the metabolic effects and, and maybe even the mineral effects that actually mm-hmm. aid sleep. Mm-hmm. They also find that they improve chronic pain um, and, you know, um, conditions like arthritis and um, inflammatory conditions get relieved mm-hmm. with hot spring bathing. And again, we still don't fully understand the processes there, but I mean, hot springs have been used forever since humans have been around. And say hot springs were the origins of life when that hot water met the cold water at the bottom of the ocean. And that process is actually still happening today. And there's really fascinating um, uh, documentaries you can look at. I think Nova has one, um, Earth from Space. It's a fantastic documentary. You can just stream it online. But it, yeah, so Earth from Space. And they've got this little section where they talk about um, the thermohaline circulation that happens today where... Um, even now you've got, and this actually ties it together because we're talking about EZ water, the exclusion zone water. Mm-hmm. Well, exclusion zone water is maximised at four degrees where water is sort of, you know, really dense. And you have the biz- biggest exclusion zone water on the planet happens in winter in Antarctica when the Arctic ice is freezing. You know, we, we said how ice um, floats. Well, when the ice is floating, that that as it freezes, it excludes salt. So the Arctic ice is actually less salty than the ocean. So what happens as the, the ice is um, freezing and floating, the, that salt water that gets excluded is this really heavy, mineral-dense, you know, salty water drops down to the bottom of the oceans. Now, that, they say that the, the waterfall, this dense, salty waterfall, is 500,000 times Niagara Falls. And you know this is you can and they and they've got amazing graphic images of this, you know, salt water, mm. you know, five hundred thousand times Niagara Falls falling down from Antarctica as the ice is forming to the bottom of the oceans, mm. and because it's really dense, it, it it's called the thermohaline circulation. Mm. It can take you know one to two thousand years to circulate around the bottom of the oceans on Earth, and that helps st- stabilize the whole global temperature. Mm. But what happens is that oxygenated salty water that's really cold, hits hot springs at the very deep you know, bottom of the ocean where it has all this you know, huge amounts of um, you know, solutes dissolved. And you have, again, that chemistry that started life on Earth um, happens and you get these nitrates and phosphates and all these other um, sort of semi-organic molecules forming. And then they travel up until they hit the continental shelf and ra- rise up and that forms fertiliser for phytoplankton. Mm. And that phytoplankton is what still produces all our oxygen today. Mm. So the oxygen we breathe is actually fed by this interaction that happens at the bottom of the oceans when the hottest water on Earth meets the coldest water on Earth, forms the fertiliser that then nourishes the phytoplankton that, that then photosynthesises and produces our oxygen. Yeah. So that, and that's an incredible um, yeah. circulation that, that mm-hmm. started life on Earth, but it's still mm. supplying us with oxygen today. And so, yeah, so hot springs are... Are super essential for who we are and, and, and all life on earth. But, you know, I recommend people, you know, go, go out to a hot spring, find your local hot spring mm-hmm. and just, um, yeah, um, explore it, reap the benefits. I mean, I, personally, I, I mean, I've, as I say, I've always loved bathing and I had, I had a peak experience uh, about 16 years ago. It was just, I was um, just, had le- I was leaving Monash University for about 10 years, more than 10 years. I was, um, sort of the alternative doctor in the medical faculty at Monash University. So I was like the, you know, the medical doctor, but I was into the alternative mm-hmm. medicine. And then I got a job offer to go to RMIT 
to be the conservative medical doctor in an alternative medical faculty because they had osteo, Cairo, Chinese medicine, but not Western medicine. Mm -hmm. And in between those two jobs, I took a month off and travelled around New Zealand and came across this place, Maruya Hot Springs. And it was um, covered by about a foot and a half of snow at the time. You know, we ended up staying there and having dinner and and I, I couldn't sleep. And it was a full moon. I went out into the snow and sat on these, inside this beautiful natural hot spring um, bath you know, lined by granite boulders you know, on a river bank, surrounded by snow-capped mountains under a full moon. I just had this epiphany, this absolute peak experience of this is who I am. And then and I came back to Melbourne and uh, that week I came back, I met Charles Davidson and he's the owner and founder of Peninsula Hot Springs. And he, he was really excited because he said, I've just drilled down 600 metres and we've just found hot water and I'm about to bring this, build this hot springs. And I was really excited saying, yeah, well, I've just been to Maria Hot Springs and hot springs are amazing. I'm about to take up this professorship at RMIT and we're going to do wellness stuff. And mm. Charles and I ended up becoming really good friends. And he's now built Peninsula Hot Springs. I think the last three years in a row, they've won the best hot spring mm. in the world award. Mm. And, they're, they're wow. just, and they're just about to open up an extreme bathing zone mm. where they've put in two 30-people saunas and ice bath and a minus 25 degree ice cave yeah. um, a wellness center where i'm going to be running workshops there so i'm really excited about that but yeah. about three years ago maria hot springs came on the market yeah. and i organized with charles and a few others and we bought it yeah. so i'm now one of the owners of this hot spring that i had this peak experience in new zealand yeah, and we've just sort of upgraded that and now we're putting you know an infrared sauna and a steam and a steam sauna and a yeah. um, traditional sauna and ice plunge pool there yeah. and um in november this year i'm planning to run um, the first extreme bathing and extreme wellness workshops, mm. retreats at Maria Hot Springs, mm. uh, which will be like five-day retreats there. And that they're limited. It can be very exclusive. Only about 20 people will mm. be able to fit there because the yoga room there is quite mm. small. But that'll be a five-day retreat. But then at the Peninsula Hot Springs, I'll be running one-day workshops on extreme yeah. wellness, which will go through breathing practices and hot and cold and a bit of the theory and, and um, yeah, relaxation. So it's, it's very exciting for me. So hot springs that's, are a really big part of, you know, yeah. what, what I've been researching and, and sort of who I am. And it's just been a joyous um, exploration. But it was, it was funny because I'd never really liked cold water at all. Mm. And about two years ago, it was actually just before I was, um, went to the International Conference on um, the Physics, Chemistry and Biology of Water in mm. Bulgaria. And I had this tour. I was travelling actually with my mother at the time. So we went to this conference on water. Then I had... Um, uh, eight-day hot spring tour of um, Europe. So we went to Hungary, Bul Bulgaria, Hungary, Germany, Austria, Czech Republic, visiting all these hot spring hotels. And then there was a global um, a global thermal think tank, which is uh, a group that I helped create, which is a group of about 30 hot spring owners from around the world. We all get together before a global wellness summit each year and mm -hmm. talk about hot spring research and business. And then there's a global wellness summit. So I had this big tour of Europe, and one of these ended up um, – we ended up this beautiful luxury – um, a place called the Aquadome in Langenfeld in Austria. Mm -hmm. And at the Aquadome, they had this experience called the waterfall. Mm. And there was this room where you big sort of shower room, about two metres around, and you'd walk in there and you could press a button and you'd either have a rainwater shower, and it was coming from six metres up, so it was mm. like a warm rainwater shower. Mm. you press another button and you'd have a, a cool shower and then light, lighting and thunder effects. And you press the third button... And you had 320 litres of ice water fall on your head Whoa. from six metres up. Oh and, this was, and I was amazed because this was not a supervised experience. It wasn't like there was a guide there saying, warning you. Mm. And you didn't even say this is what's going to happen. Mm. But a, a colleague of mine who actually, um, Jeremy McCarthy, who he's the head of um, 
spa operation for Mandarin Oriental hotels. Um, he said, oh, you've got to go back to this room and mm-hmm. try this. So I tried that and was, it was intense. It, it, it only lasted five seconds, mm-hmm. 320 litres. That's like a big bathtub of, mm-hmm. and it was eight degree water. So cold, cold water. And you ended up, you know, you, like you felt you were going to die. It felt like 20 seconds and you end up with an ice cream headache, you know, cold mm-hmm. and your body went into absolute shock, like mm-hmm. you're going to die. But it was only five seconds. But for hours afterwards, like I'm talking two or three hours afterwards, your whole body is like vibrant, tingling. Um, mm. Colours looked brighter. You know, mm. you th- things felt clearer. You had this mm. huge adrenaline response and then suddenly your whole, my whole world sort of shook up. And I'd, I'd come across Wim Hof before I did that and that, that was my, you know, wow, cold really does something. And I went back the next day and did it again and then mm. – um, a couple of months later, Wim Hof came to Melbourne and he actually came here to my home where you're sitting now and we, we hung out and then I got involved with research and we started doing, I started doing lectures and talking about that. But that was my introduction to how cold is actually really something else um, and having the hot and the cold is a really – because before that I'd just been a hot water person mm. and now I'm preaching, you know, both. Let's do extreme – let's go to the extreme of hot, extreme of cold and then find the balance in the middle. Mm-hmm. And that's – you know, finding balance is, is what we want to do with health and life and, and the more we can – be balanced and be centred, and the more we can actively do nothing, and I say, you know, you, you might think you're doing nothing, but there's always less you can do. So how, how can you actually do less? But by, by actually doing nothing, it allows you to do the most um, in terms of conscious activity, and that's this whole sort of dichotomy of human experience. Let's do nothing and then do, try and do everything as well. Beautiful. And we've gone extensively into bathing. I just want to... Talk about drinking water quickly and, and what we're... Uh, have you heard of the restructuring units? The Vortex is that restructuring unit. There, there's water, so many like drink, drinking water treatments. And um, sure, and, and there are some physical treatments like um, that use Vortexes and mm. it's based on Steiner philosophy. In fact, you can see there's, an, I've got it in my home, mm. a, a big ceramic egg. It holds 42 litres of water. <laughs> and this ceramic egg... This ceramic egg um, is porous, so the water actually naturally cools when it's in there. Mm-hmm. And by cooling, it means that the cold water sinks and the hot water rises. So that mm. has continually circulation of water without any pump or fan or anything, mm. just you know, keeping yeah. the water moving. Because water, you know, having water moving actually stops going stagnant. Yeah. And water doesn't want to be stagnant. Mm. And um, they also do flow forms. So um, they use that a lot in biodynamic farming and, mm. and in um, purifying water in farms and stuff where these flow forms, just by the, the physical shape of the water, mm. it actually has mm. this laminate form where it mm. goes in and out, forming figure of eight. So it increases mm. the, the movement of water maybe eight or 12 times. Mm-hmm. And then there's also vortex machines where water mm. will actually go for a vortex. Mm. And Victor Schalberger in, mm. in, in Austria and... and um, uh, the gym, yeah. grander, grander water and all these mm. sort of water systems, more physical systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, they're great. We still don't fully... I mean, there are 72 not scientific anomalies with yeah. water we don't understand. So mm-hmm. water is this myster- mysterious stuff that we're made of that it's essential for all life that we still don't fully understand. And then you've got um, all the different filters and alkalinizers and all these other mm. esoteric, you know, water treatments and with rocks... And I think there is a lot of hype in some of them and there's a lot of truth in other ones. So, and it's, it's sort of hard. And I often get cast questions, so which water filter do I have? And, mm. you know, where do I get it? And um, I mean, personally, I, I, I actually go about an hour and a 15 minutes from home to Mount Donabuang yeah. and I get water from – and it's funny because it's water is coming up from the earth but it's coming up at the top of the mountain. Yeah. 
and it's that's you know really quite pure water. Right. Although although Parks Victoria is saying not for drinking, they don't you know mm. it's not you know sort of designed for drinking, but it's beautiful mountain spring water, and I keep that in my ceramic egg. Yeah. And not everyone has that available. Mm. You, I try not to drink chlorinated water when I can help mm. it. I, fi- I find even when I drink it, it, it sort of dehydrates me. Mm. Um, so you know. Being really sensitive and being really protective over the water you drink, I think it's a really mm. a powerful thing. And it might be just even having tea rather than um, water because once you've boiled the water, the chlorine will evaporate off. Mm. Um, having herbal teas in your water. And Tulsi is – in fact, Tulsi is used to purify water. Mm. Um, I mean, they do it – they purify water using Tulsi in the temples. You know, they'll dip the leaves in it and you know, it's a prasad, it's a you know, blessing mm. to sprinkle water on you. But they can also use, um, in a lot of places in India, the wells are contaminated with fluoride. And, and actually fluoride, fluoridosis is actually a big issue. But mm. you can put Tulsi in the water and it'll absorb um, heavy metals and other toxic elements and fluoride and things from the actual water. Wow. So water, and t- Tulsi is actually a water purification yeah. um, method. In fact, what, Tulsi will also purify air. And there was a, mm. um, I did some work with Organic India, which is a, fantastic company that grow Tulsi um, biodynamically or organically throughout India with small farmers. But they had a, um, a contract where they planted, you know, thousands of Tulsi plants around the Taj Mahal because the Taj Mahal was getting affected by pollution from all the cars and the Tulsi would purify the air and actually help, you know, help with the, the pollution damage. So, yeah, so what, what is, um, you know, it's super fascinating. We still don't understand it. The more I think you... Um, make it water conscious in your own life, and then there's all the you know um, the Emoto's water where he talks about the, you know the, the crystals that are formed by water and talking to water. Yeah. And I've done um, you know work with um, Grandma Agnes Baker Pilgrim, and so she's the she's the the chairwoman of the um, International Council of Thirteen Indigenous Grandmothers. Mm-hmm. So she's um, uh, a Cherokee Indian. She's North American Indian descent. She's 93 now. Mm-hmm. But her whole life has been, she says, you know, she sp- speaks for the voiceless and she, she gives thanks to water. Mm-hmm. She says, we all need to give thanks to water. We need to, you know, we are all water babies. Water is essential for all life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even, um, you know, giving thanks to water before you drink it and drinking it consciously and having a yeah. blessing yeah. changes who we are. And... You know, that sounds very esoteric, but it changes who we are because we are water. The fact that you're doing it consciously changes, I mean, it just changes your consciousness and that changes, you know, your relationship with the world. And then whether it does actually change the structure of water, and there's some evidence that say that actually may change the structure of water, um, you know, it, it, it sort of doesn't cost anything, it doesn't hurt, and it actually... It makes you more conscious of things. You will experience that it does change the structure. Yeah. Well, as I say, we're still, you know, you talk to quantum physicists and they'll say, yeah, how yeah. The, the, the different structure. And then you'll look at the crystals and the motos, you know, um, messages from water books and stuff. And you can see these incredibly beautiful, you know, really stunningly beautiful yeah. images. Um, at the conference on water in 2016, I met up with um, a professor from Stuttgart University and he has a project called um, The World in a Drop. And so it's really, put that in the show notes. So The World in a Drop, what he does, he, he'll he give a, different people a, a, a little jar of water to hold. Mm. And then he'll take the jar of water from you and he'll make drops on a, on a slide. Mm-hmm. And he'll let those drops dry and he'll photograph them. Wow. And what, what he'll, he'll, that'll show is 
the drops from you will all look yeah. a little bit different, but they'll be a signature for you. Mm. And they'll be different from the drops from me yeah. or from someone else. So they're, it, just by holding the water and yeah. giving it your energy, um, and I think he, he came under a bit of flack because he was actually an aeronautical engineer, mm. um, not a water scientist. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and it's a bit esoteric. I mean, this starts to give credence to homeopathy and all these other things that are sort of against you know, current sort of Western understanding of how the world works. Mm. And how can you hold water and changes the structure mm. so it looks different? So he actually started doing these things with art performances, um, art exhibitions where he shows these photos, beautiful photos of water mm. in a drop. And he, he's gone to kindergartens and schools and they've done these little experiments mm. to show that you, by you holding water, it actually changes the structure and you can actually see that in a photograph mm. of just a drop. And that's not a microscopy that a moto does. It's just a, a, a macro mm. drop of water. Mm. So, yeah, he's got a book on that and a website on uh, mm. the world in a drop. Mm. So there, there's still so much we don't understand. But I think, yeah, having... Uh, a uh, more conscious relationship with water yeah. changes everything. Especially with the bathing thing, that's a big eye-opener for me that, you know, one in three people don't have access to clean bathing water in, in Australia. People, Some people don't even bathe in the morning. Like, when I go to India, I really, I've really learned from going to India a lot is how much they actually bathe themselves properly mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to even mm-hmm. Western. They just take it for granted. They're, they're used to it. Um, and, and, I mean, that's that's... For me, that's the biggest issue. I mean, wealth inequality mm. is the biggest health issue on earth. But if we can, you know, one bucket of water a day for mm. people, and the, the one in three people don't have access to that. And there's some brilliant water charities. You know, there's water.org and Charity Water, which are focusing on drinking water. Because there's nearly a billion people that don't, you know, they're not surviving because they don't have drinking water. But in terms of the bathing water, that's a whole other issue. Mm. And I think that's, that's just super important that... Um, not only do people are aware about it, and, and I really believe we can transform the world through bathing, mm. but we need to start by transforming our own world. Mm. So just by changing how you bathe yourself, doing a hot and cold shower can transform who you are. By changing how you interact with water and your consciousness with water, um, you know, giving thanks to water when you drink, and then you know, creating an awareness um, and generating, I mean, we've got enough resources. There's enough money and, and techniques to, to bring a, you know, a bucket of water for everyone on earth. And, and Charles and I, we've got this Bathe the World Foundation. So June 22nd now is World Bathing Day. Yeah. But then we're, we're planning an event. And this event is just, it's, it's gathering a life of its own. So it's going to be the Bathe the World event. And it came out of a conversation we had where he said, you know, I said a note to Charles, you know, we want to, to bathe the world is the biggest, most powerful thing we can do for health on, on earth. He said, yeah, but he said, why don't we figuratively bathe the world or literally do it? Why don't we get someone from every nation on earth and get them to bathe together at the world's biggest hot spring? Because Charles is a hot spring guy, that's how he mm. thinks. And I said, brilliant. Where, where, you know, let's make that real. Where do we do that? And it just became obvious because the world's biggest hot spring happens to be in the dead centre of Australia. Mm. Like if you put your finger in the centre of a map of Australia, it, you put your finger on Dalhousie Springs mm. and... That has the biggest flow rate, natural flow rate of any hot spring on earth. Oh, wow. So it's coming out, you know, literally, you know, from the dead centre of Australia. It's about a, a couple of hours drive from the Lambert Centre, which is the geographical compass okay. ge- centre of Australia. But it's in one of the remote places in Australia. It's mm. um, on the edge of the Simpson Desert. So you can fly to Adelaide at seven hours drive from Adelaide to okay, get there. I mean, you don't get there by accident. You know, this <laughs> is <laughs> an event to just get there. And I was there early this year with um, Dean Archie, who's the chief Aboriginal ranger mm-hmm. and indigenous elder and tribal landowner of, mm-hmm. of, of that region 
and he showed us around. So th- there's these massive lakes of drinkable hot water, wow. in the, and like lakes of it, like big, big, stunning um, um, oases of hot water in the yeah. middle of nowhere. What's the temperature? 38 degrees. Wow. You can swim in it, and it's just divine to swim mm. in. And you can fit uh, 2,000 people in there. So we want to bring a person from every nation on earth to the centre of Australia, to mm. so the remotest location in the driest continent. It's going to be hosted by the oldest living culture on earth, which mm. are the um, Indigenous Australians from that mm. region, um, and to bathe the world and bring awareness um, and on, in the biggest hot spring, biggest natural hotspot on earth to bring awareness to the fact that one in three people don't bathe and that we have the ability um, to change that and, and really to create a vision. You know, what would the world look like if everyone had access mm. to not just to drinking water but to, yeah. to human dignity, to feeling good yeah. about themselves, to not stinking, um, to beauty, to identity, to culture, to yeah. spirituality? Um, so that goes beyond survival. It, be- so it goes. It talks to the human condition. The, the collective consciousness will just grow to a much more pure, loving, peaceful state. And, and everyone will be wealthy. Mm. You know, the whole world yeah. becomes like a whole... Wealthy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I mean, even in the language, I mean, I've got a... Which I haven't posted. I, I, the, the, the talk I gave at the conference on water, um, physics, chemistry, and biology of water, talked about that, how a well is where you find water. And how do you find water? You divine it. You know, so water is divine. We talk about mm. it in our language. And you know, everyone wants to be wealthy. Mm. So, you know, even in our language, water is essentially part of, of um, what we desire. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, I don't think we can ignore it. And, and mostly we do. And if you think about m- what most people drink, and this sort of ties us back to Tulsi, where... Um, most of the beverages people drink are sugar, alcohol, and caffeine. So, you know, we drink sugar to pepper us up. We drink um, caffeine to, you know, sugar to give us energy, you know, caffeine to pepper us up, and alcohol to, to you know, depress us. Yet with Tulsi, um, you get the activation that you get from sugar. You start to stabilize the blood sugar, and Tulsi is really good for that, for giving you energy. Tulsi increases cognitive awareness, um, like caffeine does, without the jitteriness, and it Tulsi gives you a relaxation, but without the depressant effects of alcohol. So if we could transform what people drink and drinking Tulsi, if you can replace just one of the sugar, alcohol, and caffeine drinks you normally drink with a Tulsi tea. For those who don't know, Tulsi is holy basil. Yeah, Tulsi is, Tulsi is yeah, holy basil, oximum sanctum, and it's um, the most revered and holy plant in all of um, Ayurveda. And in India, every... Um, Hindu household has a Tulsi plant that they worship as a deity and they'll actually go and take a, a, a Tulsi leaf every day and, and eat it and, um, and it's like it represents the connection to the creative power of nature where you, know, you can nurture a plant and it'll grow and it'll nurture you. And I think that's, again, something we've lost in the, in the modern world that we don't eat things we grow ourselves. Mm. So food's something that somebody else grows on a farm, you know, with pesticides and fertilisers and war chemicals, basically. Um, so getting into that process of life um, is really powerful. But if, if people could just, yeah, replace one of the drinks, you know, sugar, ca- caffeine and alcohol, which sort of drives our modern society, and replace it with something like Tulsi, um, then you start to transform consciousness globally. But if you think about sugar, alcohol and caffeine, every hotel... Every hotel room, every restaurant, every aeroplane, you can get sugar, alcohol, and caffeine drinks. Um, 
yet, you know, herbal teas, you know, Tulsi is not mm. yet available. Yeah. So that's, we've got a long way to go, but Tulsi is something you can grow yourself. I mean, Melbourne, uh, you have to protect a little bit from frost. So I've got a little, I've got a little nursery out here. I'll put my Tulsi plants um, away in the winter when it's frosty here. But otherwise you can grow it yourself and, you know, you can see my kitchen table. Mm. <laughs> They're a bit sad ones now, but I've mm. always got little Tulsi cuttings on my kitchen table. Mm. So the smell is great. Mm. But then after a week or so, that'll sprout roots. Yeah. I can plant it and I can give it away. And it's like a, a scoby, like a you know mm. kombucha scoby. It's something that just generates and gives away. So you know, I call it the gift that keeps on giving. And I have a, you know, a ritual every Christmas where I give away Tulsi plants. And I say to people, you know, this is the gift that keeps on giving. And so you can enjoy the, the, the plant and the, the flower and the smell. And then you can, as it grows bigger, you can pluck the leaves. And that can be used in pesto or you can make mm. your own tea. Mm. And then as it gets bigger, you can cut the flowers and, and then grow plants that you can give away yourself. Um, so it, it, it's sort of this sort of, I mean, it's not really anti-economy, but it, it goes against the capitalist system because it's something that's free, that you can grow yourself, that, and you can be part of that cycle of nature. And, yeah, I mean, water's a big part of it because once you've got a tossy plant, you need to look after it, you need to water it, and mm. even the water that you give it and the, your relationship with the plant changes it's your relationship with... a sensitive plant as mm. well, too. But, and it's beautiful. I mean, there's, there's the plants I've got here are Krishna Tulsi with the purple mm. flowers, but there's white flowers and pink flowers and there's mm. the different, you know, the Varna Tulsi and Rama Tulsi. But it's, um, yeah, it just changes our relationship with nature when you start to eat something you grow yourself. Mm. And then to be able to have something you've grown and to give that away as a gift is, is also a really beautiful thing that it, you're giving something you've nurtured rather than just going out and buy a gift mm. for someone. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I really encourage people to, you know, go out and drink. I mean, Organic India and, and Pucker, I mean, they've got both got great Tulsi blends. Um, organic India are an incredible company that actually supporting, you know, farmers and um, organic agriculture in India. Um, but, you could, but you can grow it yourself. Yeah, you got ask your friends. Even local Indian grocery stores, they sometimes are selling seedlings because that's all they're doing, mm-hmm. they're taking it out of their garden and selling it. A lot, a lot of the commercial Gum nurseries don't, don't, don't yeah. actually have Tulsi plants. Right. So the best way is actually to find someone with yeah. a cutting and get a cutting. Yeah. Um, but it grows really well um, in most of the world, actually. Mm. And I can't think of any other plant that you can eat from every day of the year and the plant will sustain itself. Mm. I mean, fruits and vegetables are quite seasonal. Yeah. But if you've got a really big Tulsi plant, you can have you know, one or two leaves a day and the Tulsi plant will thrive. Yeah. I, I'm, I've, I was up in Byron Bay a couple of weeks ago and... and there are some plants that I, I gave to some friends a few years ago, and these have grown to two or three metres high. Like, they're massive, the biggest ones I've ever seen. You know, in mm. Melbourne here, I'll put them in pots, and yeah. they grow maybe a, you know, a metre high. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're quite abundant, um, and the flowers are beautiful. So, yeah, and mm. the, the physiological effects of Tulsi on, the, yeah. on you know, metabolic syndrome, on diabetes. Mm. Tulsi is also fantastic as a... Um, it actually purifies water, but it's actually as a disinfectant. So it's just as good as chlorhexidine for a mouthwash. Mm-hmm. So just rinsing your mouth with Tulsi water um, tastes a lot better, but as antibacterial as um, a chlorhexidine mouthwash. Mm. So there's, there's so many um, positive benefits of yeah. putting some Tulsi in your water. Mm. And what, what that does to the structure of water, it's still, we need to find out. But I'm yeah. sure it does something. Yeah, cool. Okay, well, we'll have to do a, a separate talk on Tulsi one time because I'm sure, sure we could spend a lot. Well, I've got this book here, you know, Herbs and Natural Supplements, an evidence-based guide. And, I, and 
it's in its fourth edition now. So the first edition was 400 pages. The second edition was 800 pages. The third edition was 1,200 pages. The fourth edition now 1,600 pages. And in the f- first three editions, there wasn't a chapter on Tulsi. And I thought, okay, for the fourth edition, I need to write a chapter on Tulsi. It's not going to be that much. Mm. And it ended up being 10,000 words and you know, more than you know, well over 100 references. I think it's closer to maybe 300 references yeah, right. on the chapter on Tulsi. And mm. um, and that was a real eye-opener because there's a lot of research, animal studies and human studies, and now I'm doing some human studies. In fact, we've just published, again, open access, a systematic review of the clinical effects of Tulsi mm. that's been published now. Um, one of my PhD students in the guard, Jamshidi, who's actually a dentist, but she's um, just done a clinical trial where we're writing up the results on the cognitive effects of a... Of a um, and cardiovascular effects of drinking Tulsi tea. Um, we've just done a, published a meta-analysis and systematic review of Tulsi and looking at the um, cardiovascular and metabolic effects of, of regular Tulsi consumption. Mm. So Tulsi is a, a wonderful herb, um, and it can, you can blend it with so many other different herbs. Mm. It's, but it's just a beautiful plant, and it, it's beyond just a herbal medicine because, as I say, once you've, you're interacting with the plant, you're interacting with this creative process of nature. You're interacting with the water cycle. And, and in fact, they found that every part of the, the Tulsi plant is edible and medicinal. And even the bacteria around the roots and the rhizomes and, fun- and fungi that grow in the roots are medicinal. And, and traditionally, they say the soil that a Tulsi plant grows in is holy. Well, they actually, they've actually found it's actually got physiological, metabolic, you know, um, medicinal benefits just from the, the soil that, that wow. is changed with the roots of the Tulsi plant. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So we've still got a lot to learn in all these areas, but mm. I think we, we know enough to know the yeah. directions we can, we can be heading. Mm. And, and where do you personally find a balance between needing to get clarification by scientific studies? Because it seems inevitable rather than trusting your own... Or, you know, then you find a spot where, okay... I, I can feel this is right. I don't need to clarify. It's a great question. And, I mean, my whole life, I... I mean, I, you've been I, in university how many years? <laughs> oh, geez. I've been in academia 30 years now. Yeah, wow. I've been a professor at RMIT for 16, and I'm just about to change all that. So, you know, I said 16 years ago, I was in this position where I just took up my job as a professor at RMIT mm. and found Maria Hot Springs just before that. Well, I'm just, give, I'm just resigning from my job at the end mm-hmm. of this year, okay. and I'm going to be doing full-time work in... Um, the hot spring industry, right. um, doing extreme wellness programs. I'm also working in um, the building biology industry, looking mm. at the health of our homes. And, that, and waters, we haven't even talked about that, but yeah. there's a parliamentary inquiry right now into water-damaged buildings and mould mm. and biotoxin-related illness. Mm. And that's massive. They say 50% of Australian homes have water damage. Mm. And we, they could do a whole other show on that. Um, so I'm being involved with that, and I'm writing children's books, and I've got three different children's books. One's about to be published um, based on the traditional Taoist story, and I've got two more in the process, and one's actually the story of water, mm. where I talk, tell the story of how water came to earth mm. and all the way through evolution, but it's in verse. So it's sort of like um, David Attenborough meets Dr. Seuss mm. <laughs> telling the story of water. So that's, but that's probably, it's being illustrated, so that will be probably another year or two years before that book becomes available. It's a long process writing children's books, mm-hmm. um, getting them illustrated. But, you know, I mean, I've got all these other, all these great projects I'm working on that I just couldn't keep a full-time yeah. university job. Mind you, I'm, I'll still be involved with my PhD students and, you know, doing a sauna research mm. and the hot springs research and health retreat research mm. and Tulsi research. Mm. So, um, yeah, my life's very full. But, mm. yeah, the question is, you know, how do I balance you know, getting scientific 
validation versus yeah. just doing things. Well, I mean, I like to like to walk the line between them. I mean, often the more conscious I am of myself, my own physiology, I can sort of sense what feels good. Mm. And that often anchors me. So I, I try and build lifestyle practices into my own life, whether it's a hot and cold shower, which I can do. I mean, there's no excuse not to do it, really. Mm. It doesn't take any time. Mm. Doesn't ta- no, there's no equipment. Um, drinking Tulsi tea, I can carry that around the world. It's yeah. great for, um, for travellers because... You know, it helps with the immune system and helps with all you know, jet lag and metab- metabolism and everything. So have, having that feels good to do. And then you start to go into the research and you start to validate it. Yeah. And research is also super slow. I mean, to do, mm. we've done a, we're doing a clinical trial on, on Tulsi, for example, or hot springs or saunering. You know, it's a three or four year process to mm. do. And so it's someone's whole PhD is just to do that. Yeah. So you can't really wait for that. Know, that to happen. Yeah. I mean, there is you want to look at what's happened in the past, and and I, you know pay a lot of respect to cultural, um, spiritual traditions. Mm-hmm. So you know the tradition of saunering has been going on for you know hundreds and thousands of years. Mm. Um, hot spring bathing has been going on for thousands of years. Drinking yeah. herbal tea in Tulsi is you know yeah. embedded in spiritual cultural traditions. So there's got you know so I give that quite a lot of weight. Okay. It's not something new thing that we've just created like mm. I don't know antibiotics or you know something that's very recent. This is. Yeah. In, embedded into human culture um, and it's nice to get validation of how it works and then you know taking something like Wim Hof he's taken some you know pranayama and Tibetan Tumo you know breathing practices to a, to another level he's yeah. just done that from his own experience but now to validate that and to understand wow if you can control the immune system what does that mean for people with autoimmune disease mm. what does that mean for um you know, people with cardiovascular disease and vascular system or even regenerative disease if you can activate stem cells. Mm. So I think, you know, I think we've, I'm going to learn about that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm much more excited about activating my own internal regenerative processes as I am investing in a pharmaceutical company that's going to make a new mm. gene, you totally. know, s- stem cell. And that may happen. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's, that becomes less... I mean, wealth inequality is... The, very, the, very, you know, the rich are getting richer and the poor mm. are getting poorer. Mm. And, you know, I'd like to bridge that. Yeah. And that's sort of what I've made my life commitment. So, you know, operating through Bathe the World Foundation and um, through the research I'm doing and some of the other activities and even the awareness I'm raising through my children's books uh, mm. all sort of have that aim. And, and this event, in you know, the Bathe the World event, mm. now we were talking about June 22nd, 2020, but now we're actually think we've got uh, permitting with the South Australian government at the moment. We're looking at 2022 for the big global yeah. Bay the World event. So we've got a few years to okay, to awesome. operate that. But um, yeah, I'd like to see my lifetime that we have a world where everyone can wash. Because mm. without without being able to bathe and wash, you, know, yeah. you, you really can't be well. Congratulations, you made it to the end. Well done. You are so devoted to knowledge and to discovering this foundational element in life. What a appa, as we say in Sanskrit. Hey, if you want to support this show, because at the moment I just spend my time and money doing it for the love and to spread the knowledge. But please, what you can do is subscribe. And when you hit that subscribe button, you will magically appear in your inbox the monthly episode. And you don't have to worry about looking and winning coming up when it says it'll automatically download then you can listen to it on airplane mode and not be zapped with electromagnetic fields so that's a wonderful thing subscribe then you can leave a review that would be very helpful um, in the podcast world reviews are essential so that they don't get so this podcast doesn't get lost into the ether of the internet so 
that would be awesome. Leave a review, share it with your friends, whether it's you know, a snapshot on Instagram story or share it via Facebook, Instagram, send it to a friend, send it to someone who could do with some cold water exposure or, you know, how to, who's not aware or who's just, you know, flogging water like it doesn't matter, um, wasting it, you know, let's spread this and yeah, we'll definitely get Mark on soon and yeah, we're going to start a little water series now, so you're going to see some other experts on water talking about more about structured water, about that fourth phase of water. And don't forget to check out the resources section and the show notes. We've got more detail into that. We have an even extended bio of Professor Mark. I made it shorter. The full version will be on the show notes. So go to Vital Vader, click on Learn, click on Podcasts, and you can find this show and see the show note. Thank you once again. Until next time.